So what I want to do is move as fast as we can because, frankly, basic doctrine uh, is really much longer than four hours. Uh, at the uh, When I first started teaching the Sunday school back in September of 2004, that's the first thing we started with was fundamental doctrine. That took two years. Uh, so we are going to do two years uh, in, four in four hours, maybe. So let me just begin uh, uh, with an introduction to it, and that introduction is why should we study doctrine? And uh, there are a number of reasons why we should be studying fundamental doctrine. One is right now the American church is steeped in ignorance. Uh, there have been various uh, studies done, uh, tests given by places like Wheaton, asking Christians that attend evangelical churches basic Bible knowledge. And they've uh, uh, tabulated or they've com- figured up these, gone through the answers they've gotten, and a high percentage of people that have answered the questions think, for example, that Sodom and Gomorrah were married. Now that's nonsense. Sodom was married to Delilah, right? Yeah, but in the days when I was growing up, you could ask anybody on the street corner in this country, and they'd be able to tell you about David and Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would be familiar with the phrase or the verse in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would have eternal life, would not perish, but have eternal life. Today, the average American has not heard of any of that. And in this culture, the only Bible verse they know is Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, And so that crass ignorance of the culture has found its way into the church, uh, and very few people really understand the scriptures. Paul said this, and here's the danger, and here's why it's critical. Paul said this in Romans 10, um, verse 1. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them is their salvation. Now, when he says them, he's talking about the Jewish people uh, of his time. He says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, zeal without knowledge is disaster. And when he says that they have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal without knowledge, the word he's using there for knowledge means precise knowledge. In other words, they know about God, but they don't understand God. They don't understand who He is. They don't understand what His plan is. And so many Christians can be zealous today without having a precise knowledge uh, of the Scriptures and of God Himself. Um, Numerous cults uh, and other uh, groups that are heretical are all over the place and they are teaching false doctrine constantly and they're leading lots of people astray because they use terminology that uh, nobody knows you know Ben I'm glad you did that uh, I made outline <laughs> oh yes I did This is something you can make notes on. It's not in-depth at all. It's just 
a word here and there, but it's what we're going to cover. But one of the, the, the problem is the church is awash with false doctrine that is coming in, and people don't have enough understanding of Bible itself, much less the doctrines, to understand that they're being given false doctrine. There are books that are on the Christian bookstands right now, that some of which are teaching false doctrine. And people don't realize, they think it's wonderful, but they read it and they're not realizing that what they're hearing is uh, heretical. Um, a very common comment that I hear in the evangelical church all the time is just give me Jesus. You don't need doctrine, we just need the love of God. Look folks, God's love is always defined in terms of doctrine. Because if you separate the doctrine from the love of God, you'll wind up with some sort of humanish idea about what the love of God is, which usually winds up excusing sin on the grounds that God is going to forgive. Thanks. Um, the statement by uh, Jude in Jude 3 is, he says, be prepared to stand for the truth, to contend for, I'm sorry, to contend for the faith. Now, when he talks about the faith, he means the body of doctrine. Anytime in Scripture you, you see the words, the faith, it's talking about the primary body of doctrine. And so it's critical for us today with universalism coming into the church. Incidentally, I heard a statement from the new pope, and it's very clear from his statement he's a universalist. In other words, everybody is saved whether they accept Jesus or not. Regardless of what religion they go to, Jesus' atonement covers everybody, regardless of whether they receive him or not. Uh, universalism is coming into the church in the evangelical world. The Shack is a, is a book that Christians just love to read and thought it was really great, but it's teaching universalism. Uh, there are numerous inroads being made into the uh, evangelical church that are teaching various heresies, but people don't realize, because they don't know their doctrine, they don't realize that they're, they're drinking in poison. Uh, so that's one of the critical reasons for understanding doctrine. Number two is doctrine affects how you worship. Uh, doctrine is, your understanding your doctrine is the way in which, or impacts the way in which you worship. St. Augustine said this, Shall I praise you before I know you? No, I must know you before I praise you, lest I praise you amiss. So what you know of God is what causes the worship in response to that. Doctrine should always be sought with the intention of coming to know God, because that's the way he has disclosed himself. You don't want to, as I prayed earlier, you don't want to just be acquiring information. You want to increase in the knowledge of him because that, that's how uh, he has shown himself is through his doctrine. Now here is a, let me give you a couple of books. I called this course this time Knowing God, hoping to fool as many people as I could into attending. Now, I was going to call it Unmasking the Antichrist, but we decided that wasn't fair. Besides, they would have had to set me up over here in the sanctuary. And then we'd have done it in two sessions. But this is a book by J.I. Packer. It is Fundamental Doctrine. It is written for us laymen. 
It is really good, and I would suggest that you try to get your hands on this. Uh, it's a classic uh, in the area of doctrine. Now, if you're really, uh, ex- two things, if you're really excited about doctrine, or you just need help lifting weights to increase your arm strength, this is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And again, it is written for the layman. It is not highbrow stuff that you can't understand half of what's being said. This will go into much greater depth uh, than knowing God. But uh, either one of these, I would start with J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. There. Pardon? J.I. Packer. J.I. J.I. Packer. The big book is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Brudem, incidentally, is charismatic, a reformed guy. So he's a very interesting guy. Uh, but the whole reason uh, for really coming to know doctrine is those two that I've given, and the third is this. And that is the doctrine is the basis for application If you uh, in the Christian life. If you look at, for example, Romans... Uh, in Romans 12, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, verse 1, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The therefore at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, relates back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrine. Then Romans 12 through the end of, oh, about 15, 13, 15, 15 is all application. Love one another, do this, do that to one another, uh, forgive one another. All the things you read so often the apostles that everybody preaches on, you don't have a basis for doing that unless you know the doctrine. And Paul again in Ephesians, well, the first three chapters of Ephesians is primarily doctrine. Then he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 and says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, in light of the great doctrinal truths I've explained to you, here is the basis then for the application that follows. And Ephesians can be divided in half. All of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament scripture uh, follow that pattern. They don't necessarily follow it as clearly as Paul does, but they will invariably give you doctrine in application. So it is critical to know doctrine just to have a basis for the application that we're exhorted to uh, by the apostles uh, in the scriptures. Now, um, what we want to do is we want to start with not man, but God. So the first doctrine we want to look at is everybody got one of these now? I know some of you have come in late. Okay. Uh, the first doctrine we want to look at is called the doctrine of, of God. How many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed? We used to recite that every Sunday in the Presbyterian church I grew up in. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It starts that way. Well, when you study doctrine, that's how you need to start. Everybody wants to start with man, but you really have to start with God. And uh, a study of basic uh, doctrine always has to go that way. The Bible starts with God, 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. <laughs> so the Bible literally starts with God. And the knowledge of God is really the summation of all doctrine. Uh, and it impacts uh, all of our lives. Uh, and the Bible starts with God's existence. But the way that it starts with God's existence is it assumes his existence. It doesn't give you proofs and arguments. However, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, offer proofs, but it doesn't ignore them either. And throughout the scripture, you'll see certain verses that will reflect the proof of the existence of God. Romans 1.20 uh, is a good example of it, where it talks about being able to ascertain uh, God's existence through looking at creation. The various, uh, the, the in-depth detail of creation is sufficient for anybody, even a child, to look at that and see that there is a creator. In fact, one of the great atheists of the 20th century was a gentleman named Sir Anthony Flew, and he wrote a book in the 60s uh, entitled There Is No God. But right before his death in about 2004, he acknowledged God. He renounced atheism, and he acknowledged God. Now, he didn't necessarily become a Christian, but he wrote a book, another book. This time he crossed out no in the title so that it reads There Is a God. What convinced Sir Anthony Flew uh, that there was a God. He was interviewed by the news media and he said, DNA. I just don't see how DNA could come up there and evolve on its own. And he's right. Uh, DNA is a beautiful example. The more science delves into the depths of creation, the more obvious it is that there is a God. Uh, because the more ordered it is. And uh, it, if you deny God... Uh, with the knowledge that we have, you're only doing so deliberately in order to avoid uh, admitting something that is higher than you. Most people are against God and denying because they want to do what they want to do. And they don't want to uh, submit to a higher power. But he is very much there. Um, various places throughout the scripture will give you hints as to who he is. We're not going to go into that in great depth. But again, let me quote St. Augustine. He says, the knowledge of God must come before we seek anything from him. Uh, and for example, uh, that would be very true. Psalm 40, uh, 145, I think. Uh, Psalm 145 says, the Lord, uh, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him to all who call upon him in truth. So Augustine is right on when he said, I need to know who he is uh, before I seek after him. Okay, what are the attributes of God? What do we mean by the attributes of God? The essence of who he is. You, you hear about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is quite simply the essence of all that he is. And all that he is, is manifested in what we call the attributes uh, of God. In other words, the very aspects, various aspects of who he is. And if you fall asleep after the second hour, but you get this, you're way ahead of the game. Because so many cults and false groups get started 
because they don't understand who he is. And they have these foolish ideas about what kind of person God is and the aspects that are the essence of his being. I was uh, putting gas in my car uh, at a QT and a little lady walked up to me and handed me a track and she wanted to talk to me. And I said, you're by any chance the watchtower? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I have a problem with Jehovah's Witnesses because they deny the divinity of Christ. And she said, but he wasn't divine. I said, Christ was God and he took on flesh. She said, no, that's impossible. I said, oh, I thought Jesus said all things were possible with God. What they've done there, and they've they've, uh, corrupted other aspects of the understanding of God, but to say that it's impossible for God to take on flesh is to undermine his omnipotence. Sure he can uh, in fact, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, you have created the heavens and the earth by your power and by your outstretched right arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And then in verse 27 of the same chapter, it says the same thing, essentially. Uh, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And I like the way the living puts it. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Everything's easy for me. But they don't understand God and they don't understand the aspects or attributes of God. And so they get confused. And that's where a lot of the cults uh, get started. Are you with me? Everybody awake? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's take the first one, which I've got listed there. Uh, on your uh, little outline, and that is the incomprehensibility of God. Now, there is a great word. If you can spell that on the Scrabble board, you'll win that game, and nobody will ever play with you again. (laughs) In fact, all of these terms that we're going to use for the attributes of God are great Scrabble words. Uh, And if you succeed in making any of these words on the Scrabble board, my guess is the rapture is close <laughs> because the chances are highly unlikely that you ever will. In other words, God cannot be fully comprehended is what that means. And we are never, ever going to fully comprehend God. And that's good because if you could, then we would be worshiping you. Uh, even in eternity, folks, even when we are with him in eternity, we are never going to fully comprehend him. Uh, look at Romans real quick, 11. Well, I can tell by the direction and how much time I'm taking that I'm not going to be done at four, like I said. How many can stay till eight? Uh oh. <laughs> Somebody's called my bluff. All right, Romans 11, oh, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And Isaiah 55, uh, 8 and 9 says, For my ways are above your, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And yet, he has made them known. He has made his ways known. He has made his thoughts known. And for his children, he is willing to reveal himself. So God is incomprehensible to us. We cannot grasp who he is. Never will be able to grasp the totality of who he is. But at the same time, 
He is knowable. And Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17, he says, I pray that you would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In fact, it is the love of God that causes him, if you will, to reveal himself. Uh, And so while he's incomprehensible, uh, he is knowable. And once we come to know him, that begins to result, or should result, in a sense of awe and reverence. Uh, And the people who uh, tend to lack awe and reverence, and I see a lot of that in the church, uh, are saying that they don't know him by their conduct. Because if you know him, you wouldn't be irreverent. Uh, you could only uh, come before him with deep awe and reverence. That's why Jesus, uh, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, begins with, Our Father who is in heaven. What is he saying? That itself is not a petition. But what he is saying is, as you prepare to come before him, recognize who he is. Contemplate who he is. Spend some time thinking about who he is. And one of the things I do when I begin to pray Uh, is I will, taking that first phrase, our Father who is in heaven, I will begin to go through the various attributes of God in recognizing who he is uh, and who I'm coming before. And so when you begin to understand him and know him, you have to, that has to result in awe and reverence. And if you see it going on, there's, there's a lack of reverence before him. Those people indicate they don't really know it. Now, Second uh, attribute of God is He is infinite, uh, and uh, the the definition of that is He's not finite. Now, isn't that helpful? Let's go on to the next one. What do we mean by infinite? It means that God is an absolute being. He is not dependent on anything. He is not dependent on conditions of any type. He is complete and holy within himself fulfilled and i hear people talk about the fact that god created man because he needed fellowship that undercuts his uh, infiniteness he didn't need us folks we'll get into why he created us he did not need us god does not need uh anything uh he is above everything for example look at colossians one uh, seventeen real quick uh, this is one of my favorite passages. It's talking about Jesus. Uh, let's see if I can get it. He is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. The fir- this is Colossians 1. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Now only an infinite God could do that. Not dependent on anything and needing nothing, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. How many things have been created by him? All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him he holds all things together. Uh, He is uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Moses at the burning bush said, who shall I tell the Hebrews in Egypt when I go to them, who shall I tell them sent me? He says, 
say that I am that I am sent you. That is a statement of the infiniteness of God. That particular name speaks to that attribute of God. Holy and totally within himself fulfilled. Okay, let's go to the next one. Everybody with me? All right. Next attribute is God is spiritual. Jesus said to the woman at the well in uh, John 4, uh, verse 24, God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit uh, and in truth. God, essential being, has none of the properties of matter. You with me? Now, why does it say uh, his strong right arm or his hand? or his foot, or his ear, or his eye. Why does the scripture refer to him in manners that matters that would give us an understanding that he is physical in the sense that we think of? That is what, and ready, here's the next Scrabble word. That is what is known as an anthropomorphism. You would really have to have three Scrabble boards for that. Anthropomorphism, what does it mean? They are using human characteristics to describe God so that we can, as human beings, grasp something of who He is. You with me? Yeah. We are, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But we're, we're not necessarily physically made to do that. Because God is spirit. And so there is, He does not exist in the sense of any of the properties of matter. Um, and he is not discerned by bodily senses. In other words, that's why he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And we'll, that's another one of his uh, characteristics or, or attributes. And we'll look at that uh, even uh, in just a minute. Even though he's infinite, he's immutable, he's incomprehensible, uh, but he is a spirit being. Uh, and he has made appearances in the Old Testament uh, with a human appearance. Well, that's for our benefit because we can't, we can't grasp that uh, as, as he really is. Okay, the next one uh, is that he is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2 uh, from everlasting to everlasting you are God now eternal means there's no, there was no beginning to God and there's no end to God eternal and immortal are not identical angels are immortal but they're created beings so they have a beginning we in our spirits are immortal we will dwell with him in eternity. In fact, the unbeliever will also dwell in eternity, just not with him. So our spirits are immortal, but we're not eternal. Only God is eternal. Only God had no beginning and has no end. One of the great arguments of the last 200 years or so, beginning with Immanuel Kant, was the idea that the universe was infinite uh, and eternal. And now, thanks to Einstein's theory of relativity and subsequent discoveries, they have had to admit 
that the universe is finite. And they resisted that with all their might, including Einstein, uh, who's the last thing he wanted to admit was the universe was finite. Why? Why is that a problem? Because it means it has a beginning. And if it has a beginning, it isn't eternal. And if it has a beginning, it has a beginner. And in the 1990s, they finally just gave up altogether and said, all right, it's finite. Interestingly enough, the Hubble Space Telescope, some of the early pictures uh, that came back uh, of, of the heavens, uh, they were able to conclude certain things. One of them was that apparently the universe was uh, started with, uh, you know, the Big Bang <coughs> Theory, an explosion of light, sort of like a photon explosion, uh, that the universe was amorphous and then suddenly came together. And that this explosion of light, they analogized it to a mansion on a dark hill with lots and lots of chandeliers and lights and on this hill in the dark night and somebody suddenly turning it all on all at once uh, be the, the same effect. Now, does that remind you of anything uh, in Scripture? Uh, and God said, let there be what? And the earth was what and without substance? Void and without substance? Yeah. Incidentally, Hugh Ross, I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, he's a Christian astrophysicist, uh, made the comment that Moses' uh, discussion of Genesis in the creation gets it absolutely right in the order in which it had to come. And he said the chances of Moses guessing that is one in 40 million. <laughs> So, yeah, he is eternal, we are not. Next one is he is immutable. And this is really a blessing. God is absolutely unchanging. <coughs> the essence of who he is never changes. His attributes never change. His holiness never changes. His love never changes. Uh, now, we're different. We're very mutable. We change all the time. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And our problem is we tend to create God in our image. And, you know, as the culture changes, so does God change. And, you know, currently the fight is now against his word because the culture is desiring to do things uh, that are contrary to God's word gay marriage, all this sort of thing, the immorality that's in the culture. What do they do? They desperately try to redefine God's work. Uh, they try to redefine God. Well, God really didn't mean that when he said that. In other words, they want a God that changes with the culture, but God never changes. And he is the same yesterday, today, uh, and forever. James 1, uh, 17 says this about him. Um, He says, every good and uh, good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Uh, in other words, uh, he is absolutely unchanged. Uh, the uh, seraphim in heaven 
uh, in uh, Revelation 4 uh, as they declare his holiness. One of the things they say about him uh, is, uh, I'm having trouble turning to my Bible. Normally the Bible opens up right for me. He says, um, they speak of God and they say this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In other words, he is absolutely uh, and completely unchanging. Um, And frankly, folks, uh, it is a comfort to know that to me. Uh, And it should be for the believer because uh, his character... Uh, and his person are always the same. He isn't going to fall out of love with you, shall we say. He's not going to. And I, that's not a good way to put it because that sounds more romantic. And uh, I think it's a mistake to some extent to analogize God's love to romance. I don't think it's quite like that. But let's just say he has loved you with an everlasting love from before the beginning and he's not going to cease to love you. You may make mistakes, you may sin, you may fall on your face, you may do wrong things, but he is not going to cease to love you. The other thing about him is he doesn't have favorites. He doesn't love Billy Graham more than he does you, because Billy Graham has done more than you have. Uh, And his love will be consistent and constant, and that will be the way it is through eternity. He is that way through eternity. He is always holy. He is always pure. He is not going to vary with our ideas of what's right and wrong. He is always going to be that way. And out of his holiness comes a characteristic that we'll talk about in a minute, and that is faithfulness. He is always faithful. And one of the things that's important to understand when you are facing various situations is understanding uh, his attributes because he never changes. Uh when he says something, he does it. Even if the people, like for example, you remember Abraham? We were talking about Abraham a couple of months ago at Sunday morning. You know, Abraham fell on his face again and again and again. But God was immutable, faithful, unchanging, always would come back, even though Abraham had thoroughly messed it up. God would come back and reaffirm the covenant to him and then reaffirmed it to Isaac, who thoroughly messed things up, and then reaffirmed it to Jacob, who we could spend a a good hour talking about how he messed things up, but reaffirmed, reaffirmed, reaffirmed. Why? Because he's faithful. He will never bring you into condemnation. Only the devil does that. When we sin, God does not condemn us if we're in Christ. The devil is the one that comes in and brings condemnation and accusation. Yes, we need to confess. Yes, it will break our fellowship with him. But does he cease to love us? No. Does he cease to be faithful toward us? No. Does he reaffirm all that he has promised and done? Yes, because he never changes. Uh, So that's a tremendous characteristic. All right, let's talk about what I call the three omnis. Omnipresent. Uh, he is present everywhere. We can't grasp that with a finite mind. We just can't get our arms around it. Psalm 139 will go into depth about the three omnis. 
he talks about though I am in the remotest part of the sea, there you are. Though I take wings and fly off, there you are. Wherever I am, there you are. He is present continually around us. Now, that's important in terms of prayer. He is not somewhere between Jupiter and Mars, and you've got somehow to get his understanding. Because it says in Psalm 34, his ears are open to the cries of the righteous. So if he is omnipresent, and I, li- I like to quote, and I've done it on Sunday morning, I'm doing the Sunday school class fairly often, I like to quote E. Stanley Jones. If you were to reach out to touch God physically, you would have reached too far. He hears you. He's with you. Now, there is such thing as His manifest presence. In other words, where it is obvious (coughs) that He's present. Pentecost is an example of His manifest presence. Now, at the time they were having Pentecost, the Roman Senate was meeting in Rome a thousand miles away. 800 miles away. Was God there where the Roman Senate was meeting? Yeah. But his manifest presence was in Jerusalem at that moment uh, in Pentecost. Now his manifest presence can show up in various places at the same time. My great prayer every time we get ready to go to, and you should do this too, and I know Gary does it, and that is when we're going to come together and meet on Sunday morning, ask for his manifest presence. That, that's that's what we want. Now, is he there with us on Sunday morning? Yeah. But we want his manifest presence. One of the things when it talks about knowing God, understand that the New Testament when it talks about knowing God means an experiential knowledge. It doesn't mean simply a knowing about God. It means knowing him in an experiential way. Let me use a negative example. <laughs> I've read and studied about the invasion of Normandy and American troops landing on Omaha and Utah Beach. I know, having read about it, I know quite a bit about it. But my knowledge stopped short of the guy who hit the beach at Omaha on June 6, 1944. He's got a different knowledge than I've got. And that's the knowledge that God means New Testament when it talks about knowing him. The word is kenosko in the Greek. And we are talking about coming to a knowledge of him. Now, one of the cults and one of the one of the teachings of the various cults is called pantheism. Pantheism teaches that God is in everything. In other words, God's right here in this podium. God's right here in this chair. That is not what scripture teaches. God is everywhere. He is independent of his comp, uh, of his creation, although he is uh, he has cre- he is everywhere in creation, but independent of creation. Now, I read a Christian book a few years ago. I'm not going to name it, but there were elements of pantheism in it. I mean, he was talking about witnessing to a guy and telling in a bar and telling this guy that God was in the bar stool he was sitting on. No, he's not. Now, is he in the bar? Yeah. But is he in the bar stool? No. God is everywhere in his creation and only able to be that way because he is spirit. None of the created beings are omnipresent. 
Satan is not omnipresent. He has to do his work through his various demons he has running around. I don't know if they work on commission or how they work. Uh, they have a lousy retirement program. I know that. <laughs> but they are not omnipresent. They are not capable of being everywhere at once. We will never figure that one out. We can't We can't grasp that one. Okay. Uh, second one. And this is one that's a delight for me. And that is omniscience. What does omniscience mean? All-knowing. But I think sometimes we fail to grasp just what the extent of that is. In other words, one might ask this question, when did God not know? Uh, Again, another book, Christian book, sold millions. He's the guy in the book's talking about God taking risks. No, he doesn't. God doesn't take risks. Huh? Well, come up to me afterwards and I'll tell you. Uh, but he, he doesn't take risks. Uh, you know, you go to the gaming tables in Las Vegas, I hope not. But you don't know what's going to happen. You throw the dice and you wonder what's going to happen. You're taking a risk if you put your money up and throw the dice. Now, that's a lousy example, but unfortunately effective. God's not taking a risk. He knows what the dice is going to come up to. Uh, not that he would ever do that. Uh, it says, and this is something we need to really get our hands on, particularly in light of the way things are going in the world right now. Isaiah 46.10 I have called the end from the beginning. Daniel 7.1 Daniel 2 Daniel has a dream. In the dream, the four winds of heaven are stirring up the waters of the great sea. The great sea in Daniel's day would be the Mediterranean, but they're symbolic. The four winds of heaven and God stirring up the waters of the great sea. Whenever they talk about waters, they mean peoples and nations. And out of those waters come four great empires, one of which hasn't happened yet. God is in control of history and all that is going on. And he already knows what's going to happen. And he already has declared an end. And he did so before the foundation of the world. He knew you before the foundation of the world. That's part of his omniscience. He knows everything. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. When did he not know you? When did he not love you? Because he is from eternity and he knew all these things. And he chose you. You're sitting here right now because God chose you. Not necessarily, I think, even to come here, but you're a believer because... He chose you before the foundation of the world. He knows everything before it happens. Uh, you know, Jesus, it says in Colossians uh, 2, that all the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. You think Jesus understands quantum mechanics? You think Jesus always has understood quantum mechanics? Sure he does. He knows everything. And he knows everything about you. And this is what is so comforting to me. He knows all your blemishes. 
He knows all your mistakes. He knows all your sins. And you'll never hear him say, Gee whiz, when I chose you, I did not know you had the hang-ups you've got. That's a comfort, folks. Now, if you're an unbeliever, that's terror. <laughs> because he knows all there is to know about you. Uh, but to know that he knows me and called me from before the foundation of the world and he knows everything about me and he knows all my mistakes and all my weaknesses and he is prepared to show himself strong and be faithful with us. That is a tremendous comfort. And you come to that understanding in recognizing his attributes. He does not act like human beings. Thank goodness. Okay, now, there's a couple of aspects of the uh, uh, of the omniscience of God uh, and that is one is uh, the knowledge of God uh, which is actually the there's, you, know, you have knowledge in the sense of facts and you have knowledge in the sense of intuitive knowledge uh, and uh the second aspect of the omniscience of God is the wisdom of God. Unfortunately, in our modern world, we've lost sight of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing about something. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. A good example of the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is Joseph standing before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dream. Okay, now, remember the dream Pharaoh had? You know, uh, seven cows that were fat, sleep, and then out of the mouth, and the seven lean cows were laid up the fat cows, and then he woke up, went back to sleep, had another dream, this time he saw seven healthy stalks of grain, and then there were uh, seven, following that, there were seven unhealthy stalks of grain, uh, bleached from uh, famine. Pharaoh tells Daniel his dream, okay, I mean not Daniel, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph now has the knowledge about what Pharaoh's dream is. Now, here is the word of knowledge from God. It's called understanding. Joseph now understands what the dream means. And he tells Pharaoh. Then, Joseph illustrates the word of wisdom in light of the fact that seven years of famine are coming after seven fat years, what do we do about it? We store up during the good years for the bad years. That's the word of knowledge, a word of understanding, and a word of wisdom. And God encompasses all of those on a much higher level. Uh, he knows what things mean. Today, we think if somebody has a lot of knowledge that they must be smart. Uh, not necessarily if they lack wisdom. If they don't understand how to apply what they've got, and they've got some pretty stupid PhDs running around, uh, some of the stuff you see going on today are by people who've got tremendous degrees in education, uh, but their wisdom is zero. And we've put a premium on knowing without emphasizing understanding and knowing how uh, to apply it. Okay, let's talk about God's omnipotence. Omnipotence means all-powerful. Anytime you see in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, the word God, as opposed to Lord, Lord capital L capital O-R-D means Yahweh, that's his name. But 
the word God is translated El. And it is a statement of God Almighty. So it is a statement of God's omnipotence. It's always interesting, particularly in the Psalms, if you see the psalmist talking about God as opposed to Lord, meaning Yahweh, it's interesting to note the context in which he's saying that. Invariably, it is a situation that necessitates Almighty God uh, uh, being involved. Uh, God is absolutely uh, omnipotent, uh, absolutely all-powerful, uh, we are continually getting in the way of understanding that and undermining his omnipotence. Like the little lady I told you about, the Jehovah's Witness, when I said, but the Son of God took on flesh, was deity and took on flesh. She said, oh, that's impossible. No, it's not. For her to stay that, say that undermines the omnipotence of God because she doesn't grasp to- the totality of, And none of us can grasp the totality of any of it. But she didn't grasp this aspect of God. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says this. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. There's omniscience. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Omnipotence. Now, there's two aspects to God's omnipotence. One is his will. And that is he exercises will determined by nothing but himself. He is not dependent on other events, other circumstances, other people to do and to bring into effect and to bring to pass his will. It's his omnipotence that enables him to bring to pass his will. He can work with a world full of rebellious men and women and demons and still bring to pass his will. Would that the church got that through its head? That's one of our big problems today is we don't understand this. Look at Acts 4. I'm getting worked up. (laughs) But that's only because I see some of you dropping off. Peter and John have been told by the Sanhedrin under no circumstances are they to continue to preach in the name of Jesus. They come back and tell the church what they've been told. To violate the word of the Sanhedrin, the command of the Sanhedrin, is a capital offense. Uh, The church then lifts up its voice together as one. Look at what they say. Oh Lord, it is you. Now notice what their emphasis is going to be on the attributes of God. Oh Lord, it is you who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Which attribute? Omnipotence. Omniscience too, certainly. Uh, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, now look at what they're about to say here, because this is going to control their focus in terms of what they are going to do. What's great about this early church is they're told that if you don't stop, persecution is coming. And their prayer is not, oh God, get us out of it. No, no. Here's their prayer. Here's their focus. And it's controlled by their understanding of who God is. The very things we've been talking about. Look what they said. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now that's a pretty big bunch of people with a lot of earthly authority. To do, now look at 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. (laughs) They wound up doing it in spite of themselves because God's will overrides all of that because he's omnipotent. And then they say, and now, Lord, take note of their threats. And now they're going to apply this omnipotence to them. Now take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place. And what happened? Holy Spirit hit the place and the whole place shook and they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. There is a people who understand the omnipotence of God and it controls the way they think and what they do. It's absolutely critical to understand these things. Uh, Okay, enough of my preaching. (laughs) Now, incidentally, in this life, the greatest example of the omnipotence of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians... One, he is praying for the Ephesians, and he says, I pray that you would have an eye-opener of the extent of your inheritance and of the mighty power available to you that is working in you from God. And then he goes on to analogize that power. He says the same power God used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him above all rule and authority and placed him in the heavenlies in this age and in the age to come. Now, there is, a, there is a measure of power. The only time a Christian has to worry then is when he steps into a situation bigger than the resurrection. And these people in Acts understood that they hadn't done that yet. None of us ever will. It is the same power, the omnipotent God, the same power available to us, working in us, that God used to raise Christ from the dead. Raise him above all rule and authority, seat him in the heavenlies, and uh, place him in authority, Uh, in this age and in the age to come. It's absolutely incredible. This omnipotence is available on our behalf. And would the Christian church understood that? I'm not sure we grasp it anymore. Okay, now God is, let me make, (coughs) here's a nice scrabble word. God is not omni-causality. Causality. God is not (coughs) omni-causality. What does that mean? It's that he doesn't cause all things. He permits them, but he's not the cause of all things. He didn't cause Adam and Eve to sin. He didn't cause the devil to rise up against him. He permits it, but he doesn't cause everything. Uh, He allows a measure of freedom uh, within his creation. Now, he is sovereign. It is his own. It is all these qualities that make him sovereign. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, all of these things make him sovereign. But he exercises his sovereignty by love. He never exercises sovereignty in a malicious way. Uh, he exercises his sovereignty by love. Okay, that's that series of, of uh, attributes is what's called the non-communicable attributes. What do we mean by that? None of us 
can share in those attributes. None of us are eternal. None of us are immutable. None of us are omnipresent, omniscient. And I know a couple of folks that, that think they are. <coughs> but none of us, excuse me, have those qualities. Now let's talk about what's called the communicable assets. In other words, um, attributes. What do we mean by that? Aspects of that can be found in his people. God's holiness, God's love, God's faithfulness, uh, mercy. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians uh, 5, 22 and 23, that is a picture of the communicable attributes of God and they are capable of manifesting in our lives in Christ. Second uh, Peter one four says we are partakers of the divine nature. Okay, in such we manifest or can manifest these communicable attributes of God. We will never manifest the non-communicable. None of us are ever going to be omnipresent and, and anything of that nature. But what is Galatians five twenty two? Now the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Uh, gentleness, self-control. Okay, Those are characteristics, attributes of God. They are the communicable attributes of God. We can begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit if Christ is in us. That's the result of what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, being partakers of His divine nature. What are those communicable assets? Uh, I want to call them assets. Attributes. If I say asset, I mean attribute. They're not the same thing, and for some reason... I've now got my mind in that groove. What are the communicable attributes? They are often referred to as the moral attributes of God. Holiness, love, goodness. They are found in redeemed man to an extent. Let's talk about first holiness. It On the positive side, holiness is absolute purity. And we can't begin to grasp the extent of that. The poor unbeliever has no idea what he's going to be exposed to when he stands before God on the day of judgment. They have this idea in their head that they are sincere in what they're doing and they're going to be okay. And they have no idea of the purity of God that they will be confronting. That's why Isaiah cries out when he sees God in Isaiah 6, Oh Lord, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Isaiah is a prophet of God at the time he cries out. But suddenly he has seen the holiness of God in an aspect he's never seen before. That's why so often when revival hits a church or churches, the first thing that happens is everybody's flat on their face repenting because suddenly they see the holiness of God. And suddenly they see how unholy they are. Uh I thought God was pretty smart when he got me for his service. Not like these other clods I knew. Well, I've come to find out over 44 years of walking with him that I'm as much of a clod as anybody else. I've come to understand in his presence my own lack of holiness, and I don't begin to grasp his holiness. The positive side of it is absolute purity, The negative side of it is utter separation from sin and evil. 
And that's what produces what we call uh, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not something that is, you tick me off type wrath, human wrath that we think of. The wrath of God is a revulsion that moves immediately to eradicate sin. I mean, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And the wrath of God is a moral indignation towards sin that will move to eradicate it. You with me? So if you're under the wrath of God when you stand before him, uh-uh-uh. Uh, he is going to incidentally judge us on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not going to judge us on the basis of his righteousness. He is going to judge us on the basis of the righteousness of the God-man. And that's why Jesus will be the judge. And so are you going to measure up to the righteousness of Christ? Unless Christ is in you and his righteousness has been imputed to you, no, you aren't. So you're done anyway. But we'll get to that when we talk about atonement sometime about 9.30 tonight. <clears throat> okay, let me give you just a couple of thoughts. First, you know, Romans 1.18 talks about his wrath. Everybody says, well, the Old Testament's a book of wrath. The New Testament's a book of love. Now, nah, it's both. Both books are both. Romans 1.18, now the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? There's a lot of confusion here in terms of what they do. The emphasis of the Old Testament is the holiness of God. It emphasizes his holiness and it reflects that holiness in two ways. The ceremonial law of Leviticus and the moral law, the Ten Commandments that we refer to it as, in Exodus. Now, the ceremonial law teaches the difference between clean and unclean. In other words, you know, this animal's clean, this bird's clean, that's unclean. Those Creatures are not in and of themselves clean and unclean. They've been designated as such to draw a distinction, a picture, if you will, of the difference between sin and holiness. And so what you have with the ceremonial law is a picture in the Old Testament of the means by which God intends to redeem us from our sins. Because when they sacrifice an animal, for example... The high priest puts his hand on the head of the animal and confesses the sins of the people. That symbolically was a transference of the people's sin to that animal. That animal is then slain and his blood sprinkled. What happens in the New Testament? Jesus is our sacrifice and he takes our sin and he is slain. The difference is he's raised up. Uh, The animals in the Old Testament were not. It is a picture of the way in which God hates sin, but has planned to bring about an atonement for it. Okay? So the ceremonial law uh, is, a, if you will, a complex parable of what God is going to do in the New Testament. Then the moral law and the purpose of that law is also to reveal the holiness of God. God never thought any of us could keep the law. 
He did not create a covenant with Moses with the idea that, well, I tried it in the garden, it didn't work. Let's see if you can keep the law. He knew better than that. I mean, again, if we think that, what are we undercutting? His omniscience. He knows we can't keep the law. Why did he give us the law? So that when we tried to keep it, we would see how far short of it we fall. Romans 3 tells us the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Romans 5 tells us the purpose of the law is to increase sin. How many of you saw a sign walking down the street that said, don't walk on the grass? You weren't thinking of walking on the grass till you saw that, were you? Now, we will all bow our heads with our eyes closed. And I'd like to see a show of hands of those that did walk on the grass. Any law that says you shall not, the sin nature in us rises up and says, I will. See, that's the point of the law. That's the point of the Ten Commandments, the moral law. One might take the moral law first, which does come first in Exodus, followed by the ceremonial law in Leviticus. The moral law in Exodus, you shall do this, you shall do this, you shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this. And our sin natures rebel and we say, I will do it. The Levitical law says, I know you're sinners. And now if you're paying attention to the law, you know you're sinners. Here's how I'm going to deal with it. So the Old Testament primarily focuses on the holiness of God and why we have to have a Savior. You with me? This is a tremendous thing. Don't ever chop the Old Testament off from the New Testament. Uh, you'll be left uh, half-naked if you do that. It's one book, folks. It's one book. Okay, now, and here's something to keep in mind. Worship of God must always be based on and approached according to His holiness. You with me? The worship of God must always be approached and based on His holiness. That's why before coming to church on Sunday morning, you want to prepare your hearts. You're coming to Him based on His holiness. You only have the right to come to Him because Christ is in you and He has declared you holy. It's not based on the love of God. It's not initially. It's based on His holiness. You approach Him because He's made you holy. Because He's holy. What does it say? Leviticus says this, Peter quotes it in 1 Peter, you shall be holy because I am holy. It is on that basis alone that you approach it. Now why do we sing his praise? Why do we glory? Because of his love, his goodness. Uh, you know, David says in Psalm 18, first verse, I love the Lord. Why? Because of his love, all that he's done. Yeah, but we approach him always on the basis of holiness. Never otherwise. Otherwise you don't approach at all. Uh, and the New Testament, the Old Testament, is very much about that. Okay, two aspects of His holiness: one is His righteousness, and the other is His justice. Um, if you will, the law is legislated. There are two aspects to the law. 
I know I talked to a lawyer about this. There are two aspects to the law, even human law, and it applies here with spirit. There's what's called the legislative, and there's what's called the judicial. The legislative is the law that says you shall not, you shall not. You shall stop when the light is red. That's the legislature. You run the red light, police pulls you over, you get a fine. That's the judicial aspect. When we violate the legislative, which is the Ten Commandments, we then face the judicial judgment. And the value for us is Jesus faced the judicial part. We had all violated the legislature, but Jesus faced the judicial force and took our violations of the legislature for himself. Does that make sense, folks? I hope so. I mean, that can be a little bit fuzzy. Everybody with me on this? Okay, we violate the Ten Commandments, that's legislative. We pay a price for having done so, that's judicial. The unbeliever's relationship with God is strictly judicial. He is going to stand before God and do The believer's relationship with God is familiar. He's a part. He's part of the Tremendous difference. Okay. Let's talk about the love of God and I'll, I'll move along. Uh, the Old Testament emphasizes His holiness. The New Testament emphasizes His love. Uh, John, 1 John's main theme is the love of God. But he deals with holiness first. 1 John 5, 7. This is the message we have said to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him. What does he mean when he says light? He's talking about the holiness of God. Uh, It's only after he deals with the holiness of God that he begins to deal with the love of God. And you will notice that John only deals with the love of God in, within a doctrinal context. First uh, John four ten. This is not this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation of our sins. Uh, that is dealing with love strictly from a doctrinal standpoint. Look at Ephesians uh, five one. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What's going to be the criteria for this love we're going to walk in? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Again, Paul is dealing with the fact that the love of God is manifested through Christ's propitiation uh, through Christ's Uh, taking on our sins and dying for us. So you look at God's love in that way. Uh, God's love is seen through His goodness, through His mercy, His compassion, His loving kindness. And it's uh, especially toward the afflicted and the distressed. In Psalms, all over the place, you'll see God is always referring to the afflicted and the needy. If you're afflicted and needy, you're in a good spot. Uh, because God will lift you up uh, if you're afflicted and needy. That was the problem with the church at Laodicea. They were not that they were afflicted and needy; it was that they didn't know it. As long as they didn't know it, they were cutting off God's grace available to them. Now, the love of God is also seen through His grace, uh, and grace is something He's granted 
to enemies who have forfeited the right uh, to his pleasure. You look at Romans 5, you'll see that God always justifies the wicked. So if you're not wicked, you're out. Remember, uh, none of us are good. Young ruler, rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. We are all wicked. We all know it. That was the purpose of the law in the Old Testament to demonstrate that to us. The other aspects of God's love is patience, his kindness, his long suffering. Uh, he is not simply patient, but he exercises a kindness. In his patience. Anybody experience that? Every now and then he will give me an insight in terms of the damage I've done when relationships. And you look back on that and you think, my goodness, he's been patient. Uh, my, he's been kind. He, he continually pours out uh, graciousness upon his people even though we don't deserve that and the further you walk with him the more you see how much you don't deserve that I know Lewis Terry Schaefer who founded Dallas Theological Seminary toward the end of his life said, was asked what do you find to be the most important thing uh, in Christianity and he said it's all by grace it is all by grace and the longer you walk with him, the older you get, the more you realize that. Uh, A.W. Uh, Tozer said, I've walked with him 45 years, and I've always found him to be cordial and generous. I can say I've walked with him 44 years, and I've always found him to be cordial, generous, and gracious. And I don't know why. If it were me, if I were God, Y'all be in a lot of trouble. Uh, just his goodness and his graciousness and his kindness, uh, he constantly is pouring that out on his people. Can anybody here look back at that? I mean, can you can you see that? How he has just blessed us with uh, graciousness and kindness. Yeah, we've had every one of us have had some hard lumps to take along the way. But they weren't administered with uh, maliciousness. They were in order to bring us into a deeper understanding of Him. He is committed to revealing Himself to us every day. And get up in the morning and declare, when you get up, when you swing your legs around onto the floor from the bed, declare, I am His child. And Lord, thank You for all that You've done. Let me see Your hand today. That's why David, in his prayer... I can't think of the psalm. I want to say it's uh, Psalm 4. But he starts the day by saying, Oh, that you would give me your love and let me see your loving kindness in the morning. Then the, the psalm goes on and he is praying at the end of the day and he's saying, Thank you for your faithfulness. And that's what we need. We need his love at the beginning of the day through the day. And being able to sit back at the end of the day and look at his faithfulness. Are you, do you do that? Are you able to do that? You ought to get in the habit of morning and evening, uh, looking back through the day uh, and always asking you, okay, 
Now, let me suggest one other thing to you. And that is, I'll try to make this fast. The holiness of God and the love of God are different sides of the same coin. What is sin? Sin, and we're going to get to this in a little detail in a minute. Sin is a focus in our lives that is utterly self-oriented. Isaiah 47.10 describes it beautifully. I am and there is none other beside me. That's the sin nature. That is everything we do is painted with a self-focus. That's sin. That is what is so uh, repulsive to God. What is God? Everything is others focused. Um, what is love? It's the desire to meet the needs of someone else. Not so you can get something from them, but your need is to meet them. Your desire is to meet them. So holiness is simply the exercise of an others-oriented uh, aspect. So it's the same thing as love. Isn't it? Our problem is we don't love the way God does. Let me give you an example real quick. We're not going to deal with the Trinity. Uh, that would take being here till 4 in the morning, next morning. But let me give you some sense of the way this, what goes on in the Trinity. Now, I've not been there. But we get glimpses of what goes on in the Trinity. Now, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is God who is one in essence, manifested in three persons. God is one in three persons. Now, there is a false teaching that God is one person in three manifestations. That is what's called Sabinianism. It was soundly rejected in the second century by the church. It is alive and well in Pentecostalism holiness. I'm not drawing a broad brush against Pentecostals. I'm not saying that. But the, Pente- the oneness Pentecostal movement teaches that God is one person in three manifestations. That is not what Scripture teaches, and that is not what the Trinity is. Now, the assemblies of God in 1914 threw those guys out. So I'm not saying everybody in the Pentecostal church is that way. They aren't. Uh, they're uh, godly and orthodox like we are. But they, uh, there is a movement in the Pentecostal called Pentecostal Oneness that twists the Trinity and it's not correct. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit they are three separate persons. Okay. Now, how does it function? We get glimpses of it. And I want to explain this as best I can, so pray for me. What goes on within the Trinity is the members of the Trinity are continually exalting one another, glorifying one another, uh, giving glory to the other, that's what I should say. And they are never taking for themselves, they are always exalting the other. And here we get some hints of it in John. Look at John 17. 
Jesus praying to the Father. He says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? Is Jesus wanting glory for himself? No, he's not. Look at it. He says that the son may glorify you. You see that his desire for glory is not for himself, but that the father may be glorified. That's what goes on in the Trinity. Each one exalting the other one, putting the other above, each one giving the other one glory. And then he says this, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Remember what I said glory was, is the essence of who God is. Look over in John 16. Uh, Jesus says this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But when he, verse 13, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now look at 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. In other words, Jesus wants the Father glorified. The Spirit is glorifying Jesus. That's what they do. And you know what that results in? Joy. Tremendous joy. Ever increasing. On and on. Continuous. C.S. Lewis calls it the divine dance. Okay. Why did they create man then? Because they needed man? Oh no. They wanted to extend the joy. They wanted us created to be righteous with the same attitude as, as we were in the garden. They wanted us to enter into this same joy because when joy extends, it increases. Isn't that wonderful? I've used the example before, but I'll do it again. When you see a beautiful sunset, hear beautiful music, don't you grab your husband or wife or your loved one or your close friend and say, and when you see them enjoying this beauty that you see, what does it do for you? It increases your joy, doesn't it? Why do you want them to see it? You want them to see the beauty, to hear the beauty of the music. To see the beauty of the picture of the sunset. Why? Because you want them to experience the joy you're having. When you see that they do, it increases your joy. I'd suggest to you that that's what goes on in Trinity. Also, because of the love of God as it is, continually outward, exalted, that's why there is a Trinity. God couldn't be just one who would be the object of his love. You with me? Otherwise, he wouldn't need us. He needs somebody to bestow his love on. He doesn't need us. They are self-fulfilled within themselves. And they function according to the love that is their essence, that is their nature. That makes sense, folks? I hope so. He can't just be one person in three manifestations. He can't just be one being. He is three because they are within the Trinity objects of the love of what they are, who they are, not what they are, but who they are. The tremendous thing. And so why is he 
committed to redeeming us, to bring us back into that communion and fellowship of who he is. Because that is the ultimate fulfillment. That's the thing about the unbeliever. He's looking for fulfillment and rejects holiness, not understanding that holiness is the basis of fulfillment. In fact, in Hebrew, the root word for consecrate or holy is fulfilled. Anyway. Okay. Everybody awake? I get excited about this stuff. Because of who he is. And what that means. Right. Okay. Let's talk about creation. New doctrine. Okay. Now, the Bible... And we'll take a break uh, soon. Of course, that's a very subjective statement. But our culture is into subjective. Uh, (coughs) We know that the Bible created that says that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't give us a detailed description of it. And it doesn't give us a philosophy of creation. But it does claim its account is accurate. And let me give you a definition of creation from a theologian named Burkhoff. That's a pretty good definition. That free act of God whereby he in the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without use of pre-existing materials and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on him. You get that? Anybody want me to say it again? That free act of God whereby he in the beginning brought forth visible and invisible the I'm sorry, the whole visible and invisible universe without use of pre-existing material and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on You see how much of the attributes of God we've been talking about go into what we're talking about here? Omnipresence. He's not part of the universe. He's independent of the universe. But the universe is dependent on him. Now, there are various other theories that that runs counter to. Of course, and I'm not going to go into those because we don't have time. The most obvious that we deal with right now is evolution. Of course, their problem is, is whatever they say, you always have to back up to, well, what happened before that? You know, okay, all this stuff came out of some primordial slime. Right. Well, who created the primordial slime? Where did that come from? Or the idea that alien creatures landed on Earth and, and fungus off their ship populated. Okay, fine. Now, where did they come from? Uh, I mean, it always goes back. They never can get all the way back. Incidentally, astronomers have calculated, based on the Big Bang Theory, that the universe is exploding 
is about 18 billion years. Mathematicians would say that the theory of evolution based on natural selection would take a lot longer than that. Also, there are different theories of evolution, and they contradict each other. So as I was saying the other day in the Sunday school, when somebody says, I believe in evolution, I like to say, which theory? Um, and that usually catches them, because there are various theories have uh, come out of evolution. Another one is pantheism. Um, there's all kinds of screwy ideas. One is the world was created by two antagonistic spirits, equally good and equally bad. The only problem with that, that there implies something behind that that's capable of dealing with both. Uh, the Star Wars. Yeah. Genesis of creation. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm just about to get to that. So I appreciate you asking. Um, if you'll notice, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seem to be slightly different in the fact that there seems to be uh, two different stories. And um, some see that as a two-step process. Genesis 2 really picks up with man whereas Genesis 1 covers everything. But they have this, there is this theory among theologians, and I'm just going to present it for what it is, and that is what's called the gap theory. Now, that is not a department store. The gap theory says that in Genesis 1.1, let's get over there, Incidentally, I don't believe in the idea that we have things of faith over here and things of science over here. True science merely corroborates faith. And some of the greatest scientists of all time were believers. Newton, <coughs> Kepler, Galileo, Pascal, there are tremendous scientists today who are believers. In fact, the idea of intelligent design is rapidly coming to the top. Um, evolution, frankly, is more significant as a philosophy than it is as a scientific theory. I mean, it's an excuse not to believe in God because of what it postulates. But the gap theory says, number one, that it, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the idea that even at that time Satan and the angels were created, then there was a calamity that occurred which is known as Satan's fall. You will see a picture of that in Ezekiel 28 and also Isaiah 14. And then Satan fell with his demonic entities and they were cast down and then I'm sorry I said Genesis 
Yeah, and then there's a difference. Then you have Genesis 1-2. Notice what it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes right to the earth in verse 2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was <laughs> over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now the suggestion here with the gap theory is, is that everything was created in verse 1, including the angels uh, and Satan's led a rebellion against God, was cast down to the earth. There was a calamity, and that's why the earth is at this point void and without form. There is some biblical indication of that. Nothing that you would teach as a doctor, but there is some biblical indication of that. Uh, and so Genesis 1-2 is the reconstruction of the earth after Satan has been cast down. That's consistent with a lot of what Scripture says. It's very interesting. Is it the case? I can't say that. That's why it's called theory. Uh, but then you pick up with Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2, 4, says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that God made earth and heaven and then he picks up with moving toward the creation of man in great detail. Now, Victor's question is, how long did all that take? With the gap theory, it could take, who knows? But I would say to you as well that the description of the day in Genesis, there was evening and there was morning, uh, the uh, Hebrew can be taken to mean more than 24 hours. It can be taken to be an era. Uh, we use the term day also to mean more than 24 hours, don't we? We talk about something that went on in Lincoln's day. Do we mean 24 hours? No, we don't. Uh, I'm always telling young people in my day, and they look at me wondering what day that was. Uh, now, I will tell you my personal opinion. My personal opinion is it's 24 hours. Because I think God is capable of doing that. But if the gap theory is correct, that would explain why you have galaxies out there with light that takes a million years, light years to get here. They were there. They've been there. But uh, then God reconstituted the earth after Satan fell. When did Satan get there? Uh, well... We know he was in the garden when Adam and Eve were there. When did he get there? We don't know. Uh, Job talks about when God created the heavens and the earth, all of the sons of God uh, were there rejoicing. It's taken to be that that was before Satan's fall. So when he fell, he was thrown to the earth. We know that from Isaiah 14. So what happened? Is there a gap where millions and millions of years went by and then God reconstituted the earth. We don't know. But it's possible. It's not inconsistent with what the rest of Scripture has to say. Okay, let's talk about creation. Uh, first of all, creation, and Scripture will show us this, is the work of the triune God. So you have, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6 attributes creation to the Father uh, as being involved as such in it. Uh, Colossians 1.16, which we read before, where it says all things were created visible and invisible, thrones, authorities, 
uh, deals with the Son, where it says it was created through Him and for Him. And then in Genesis 1-2, you see that the Spirit is involved as well, because He is hovering over uh, the uh, void, of the, the earth that is formless and void. <clears throat> One thing that's always interested me is Genesis 1-2 does say that, says the earth was formless and void <coughs> and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters and I think the Hebrew there is hovering and the picture there of hovering is that of a dove uh, and you know we had the picture of the dove <laughs> coming down on Jesus which is the Spirit now that's symbolic so I'm not trying to say the Holy Spirit is a dove don't misunderstand me but it's interesting that what it's really saying there in Genesis 1-2 is that he was hovering over the spirit uh, of the waters. Over the, the spirit was hovering over the waters. Now, there are certain words in Genesis that in the Hebrew uh, uh, mean different things. For example, there is the word bara, B-A-R-A, and bara means calling into being without pre-existing material. So when it says... In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What it's saying is Barah, uh, that he did so without pre-existing material. Another word that is used in the creation uh, section is the word Asa, and it means to prepare out of existing material. And then there is Yatsar. Asa, incidentally, is apostrophe A-S-A-H. And then Yatsar, which is <coughs> Y-A-T-S-A-R. And that is to prepare out of existing material also. Uh, most of the creation uh, described in the six days is the word uh, asa, meaning that it was prepared out of existing material. But the original uh, creation was bara, and then um, uh, we. I'm, I'm going to have to go back. I can't remember when they talk about the creation of Adam, which it is. But you know, Adam is really formed out of the dust, so he is formed out of pre-existing uh, material. Um, now, the next doctrine you want to look at is the doctrine of the creation of man, and we want to get into the issue of what do we mean when we say created in the image of God. Uh, among other things. Genesis one twenty six, very interesting. I love Genesis 1, incidentally. Um, it's, uh, some of the stuff in Genesis is absolutely fascinating. And that is, you'll notice in Genesis uh, one twenty six, there is a pause in the creation. What do I mean by that? Well, up to that point, What's being said is in Genesis 1 3, uh, 1 6, 1 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, those are all verses in Genesis 1. God is just going bang, bang, bang. Let there, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Then you get verse 26. Then God said. So there's a conference in the Trinity. Then God said. Let us, notice that's plural. 
God there is the word Elohim, which is the plural of El. Remember what we said El was? Almighty God. Why are we talking Almighty God? Because we're talking about creation. That's why. Let us, Elohim, make man in our image. He is not talking to the angels. He's not referring to himself and the angels. Angels don't have creative ability. Let us, plural, make man uh, in our image. This is significant too because man is unique from the rest of creation. Everything is created after its kind. But man uh, is unique uh, and that's highly significant. And what we mean when we say, uh, in other words, we say God created man not after its kind, but after God's image. And so that, incidentally, man is the highest order of God's creation. I mean, there isn't anything that comes close to it in terms of the intricacy, the detail, uh, the development. Every one of us are unique uh, creatures in his created uh, order. And we are the top of the order. Uh, Nothing else comes anywhere close to it. Uh, Now, you'll notice that man is not told to reproduce after his kind because we are created in his image. Now, what's interesting about man is that we know that man's body is created from the dust and I believe yatsar is the word that's used there. But we also know that God breathed the spirit of life into him. So we have a body from earth but a being that is spiritual. So we are both material and immaterial, if you will, or tangible and intangible. Um, And man is unique from the rest of the creation, particularly animals, in that man has, and this gets into the issues of what do we mean by created in God's image. Man has a self-consciousness, a moral freedom, and is capable of abstract thought. Now, for example, a father could say to his three-year-old, go down into the basement and bring me that blue hammer. The three-year-old can go down there and do it. Blue hammer, down in the basement, know where it is, go down the steps, down the basement, pick up the blue hammer, bring it back. The dog, family dog, might be 17 years old in earth years and will never be able to do that. Not possibly maybe with extensive training certain things they could do but a a child is able to do things far above the level of animals which is an indication of just how unique uh, the creation of man is Uh, man has been given an exalted position now this is the fascinating thing we were made lords of creation And I'm going to give you an opinion. And don't go out and say, Bates said the Bible teaches this. This is my opinion. 
What's it worth? My opinion. A grain of salt is what it's worth. My opinion is God made us to be lords of the universe and that is why the universe is empty. Because together with him, we would have subdued the universe. Think about it. How long could we stay on this planet with no war, no death, no sin, no crime? Now, of course, after many, many millennia, we have finally gotten to the moon. Well, we ain't getting much further because you're not going to let that happen. My, my guess is, and it is just that, that the new heavens and the new earth, we will subdue together with them because he made us lords of heaven. Now, having just said that, Scripture contradicts what I just said. Because <laughs> Scripture says if you can think what it'll be like, it'll be more than that. But I think that what God had in mind was that we would together uh, uh, subdue the universe. And man at the time as he was created was immortal. There was no death. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, just to affirm what you're saying, that you talk about how we're creating God's image, there are certain desires and things that are in us that are like echoes or shadows of this. And the desire in men to travel to space and to examine the heavens if we want to go to no, that's a thought. seem like it'd be an echo of what you're talking about. Well, and that fits into what I'm just about to say. Oh, you done good. You done good. <laughs> You can leave. <laughs> and that is that um, we only use about, what, 10% of our brain or less? And I would suggest to you that when we fell, that shut most of our brain capacity down. And there are indications down through the centuries and the millennia of residue of what we probably were capable of doing. Uh, before sin shut it all down. And you can see why God would shut it down if we're now sinners. But for example, your savant. Uh, you know what I mean by savants? Yeah. There, were, there were twin brothers one time uh, who were savants and they had the ability to instantly calculate things mathematically. And they tested them by taking a large box of wooden matches and dumping the matches on the table holding the box above the table, dumping the matches, and the matches bounced all over the place. And as soon as the last match fell out of the box, both brothers simultaneously said, 111. They counted them up, and there were 111 matches. Um, there are certain abilities that we call paranormal sometimes that do show up in people. That some people have the ability, seems to have the ability to read minds. Now, is it demonic? I don't know. I'm not sure. It might be. I think certainly teleportation out of the spirit, you know, is demonic getting into the occult. But George Otis Jr. has a suggestion based on um, uh, looking at what we've seen as a residue down through the centuries uh, as to what man might have been capable of doing before he fell. And here's what he lists. And if you want to go look at that, uh, it's George Otis' uh, book, Twilight Labyrinth. 
Labyrinth. Uh, I think it's on page 97. I could be wrong. One would have commanded virtually unlimited and flawless memory. Boy, how I would like that. I can't remember what I did last week, but I can remember the Battle of Gettysburg clearly. Two, ability to communicate with other species. Three, able to perform instant and accurate analysis. Four, process external stimuli through all or most of his senses at once. Five, see remote places and events mentally. Six, transfer thoughts to other minds without speaking. Seven, manipulate external objects with his mind. Eight, instantly teleport himself to another location. You can see why sinners, God wouldn't want sinners to be able to do that sort of thing. Now, let me give you, yeah, Rod. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back a step. When you said what well, was just your opinion that the universe is empty, so you're speaking of extraterrestrial life, is that what you're referring to? And so your personal opinion is there is no extraterrestrial no, life. No, I think, I do think we do have, I do think unidentified flying objects uh, are probably true, but I think they're demonic. I don't, don't think they're alien lifestyles. I've, and there's some evidence that indicates they're demonic. Um, we don't we don't have time to go into that, but it's an interesting subject. Yeah, yeah, but no, I don't think that you're going to find extraterrestrial life. Intelligent life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, now that's just my opinion. And, you know, they find there are guys out there on Jupiter who've been living under the ground all this time. Okay, I'm wrong. But I kind of don't think so. I do kind of think it's empty because that was done for us. And, and go, you want to get the amazing aspect of God's creation, go Google Hubble Space Telescope and look at the photographs. Overwhelming, just absolutely amazing and gorgeous, and beautiful. And I think God said, this is for you. I'm, I'm going to do this. Now, saying that Adam and Eve may have had this capacity, let me give you an example of somebody that I think manifests these things. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man without sin. And I'm wondering if some of the things that we attribute to his abilities, uh, divine abilities, are really his ability as a man who is unrestricted uh, mentally because he's not been shut down by sin. Let me give you an example. Um, in Mark, I want to say Mark 6, the same episode is described in John 6. Jesus, uh, after feeding the 5,000, <coughs> sends the disciples off in a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes up on a hill, a mountaintop to pray. He's always doing that sort of thing, you know. Let's see if it's Mark 6 I'm thinking of.
Yeah, Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Now, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, on the average, is probably the longest part of it, I think, is about 12 miles. So in the middle of the uh, lake could be up to six miles away. This is evening time. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And notice 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. How could he see that? You ever think about that? How could he see that? I bet at one time Adam could have too. Okay. This says, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. One wonders, how is he able to walk on the sea? Is that something that a sinless man had the ability to do? We don't know. Uh, But there are, you know, oftentimes it says that he's in a group of people and he know they say something or they're thinking something, and he knows what they're thinking. How does he know that? Well, maybe the Spirit of God gave it to him. I'm, I'm not. I have no way of drawing the distinction, but it may be that his mind was completely unhindered, and he had full capacity. There's no telling what he was capable of. But I, we, I will say that his ministry was carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't, don't misunderstand me there. Yeah. Another thing, you know, if he could just walk through a crowd and they like they didn't see, you know, he, they were going to kill him, and then he just walked through, and you know, and they, it's like he's not even there. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Now we can't say. I don't know. I'm not teaching that as a fact. I don't know. It's yeah. just interesting. <laughs> uh, we're theor- <coughs> even George Otis Jr. is theorizing on that. But it does make some sense. And there is examples down through the millennia of people who had seemingly had unique abilities. Okay, <coughs> the Bible teaches that all men are a unity of race, that they originate from two people. And why is that critical? It's critical because of Romans. And here's the thing, folks. Uh, we're talking about this during the break. This idea that Genesis is a myth or not factual, you take that position, you start to unwind redemption. All of these fundamental doctrines uh, are connected together. You undo any of them and redemption goes down the tubes. And the truth of the scriptures teaching on the creation uh, is critical to redemption. Look at Romans 5. 12 through 14. Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered the world, and death throughout sin, or <coughs> in death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. <coughs> now, if it's actually a series of uh, levels of evolution where creatures live and die and come back, you know, and, and reproduce and die, and, and we finally get up to human beings through apes. How, how do we have a single man sinning 
And that sin passes to all mankind. Because death and mortality are a characteristic of sin and came into the human race as a result of that. Yeah, Ben? When you think of the, the findings of souls and stuff, of like human subspecies like the and things like that. Well, we don't know that, uh, we're not sure when those folks lived. We're, we're guessing uh, at their time period, but uh, I'm not sure that Neanderthals are necessarily sub-people. Uh, or Cro-Magnon, for example, uh, when you have a scattering of the races, the race, uh, they go to various levels, uh, various locations in the world. We have no idea uh, what kind of people we had. We know that they were all wiped out in the flood and we started over. We're not positive about when the flood occurred. Some estimate it could have occurred 35,000 years ago. We don't, you know, you, a lot of our biblical uh, reasoning on time frames is based on Bishop Usher from the 18th century or the 17th century who calculated that the earth was created at eight nine o'clock in the morning on October 16th uh, and 4004 B.C. We don't really know that. Uh, they have found in uh, a pre-flood, Many years ago, they found a a wall <coughs> that listed the kings of Eridu. Eridu was supposedly a pre-flood city. It's, it's hard to say, but the kings listed were shown to have been living thousands of years, each one. So there's a lot of mystery back there that we don't know. But I'm not. I've never taken the the Cro-Magnon or the Neanderthal to necessarily be subspecies, but simply as people who lived during a particular period of time. Um, but good question. But I can't fully answer to. Okay. Now, how did this happen? And I would say the Cro-Magnon and the Neanderthal had the same problems. They had the sin nature too, because they died. <coughs> the evidence of sin is death, physical death and ultimately spiritual death. Um, notice what Mo, uh, Paul says, <coughs> verse 13, for until the law, I'm in Romans 5, for until the, <coughs> excuse me, would somebody be kind enough to get me a bottle of water? Or a glass of it. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, <coughs> who is a type of him who was to come. So, in other words, death produces sin. I mean, sin produces death, but every one of us inherited the sin nature from Adam. But the sin uh, that Adam is guilty of in particular is called transgression. In other words, God said, don't eat the fruit. He ate the fruit. Eat, thank you. <laughs> Even though the Mosaic Law didn't come into effect until about 1440 B.C. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and people were not 
being given the law so they can say, no, I'm not going to do that, which would be transgression. Nevertheless, the fact of sin in our nature, death was, people were still dying because of the sin that is in our nature. Once we're given the law and we rebel against the law, then that's transgression. You with me? But everybody died regardless. Why? Well, we're, for one thing, God regarded Adam as the federal representative, if you will. So we all died because he did. There is what's called the seminal idea, which is that the sin nature is handed down through the male sperm. And that may be. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus did not have a male father. Um, but the idea being that uh, we all came out of Adam. In other words, when Adam sinned, we were all, in a sense, in Adam's loins. The result is, when he fell, we fell. When he died, we died. Uh, and you can see that fairly simply. How many of you have a great-great-grandfather? A couple of you. Well, those of you that do, I will address this to you. Where would you be right now if your great-great-grandfather died when he was four? Yeah, you're in a sense in his loins. If he had been cut off early, that would be the end of you. You know, we wouldn't be seeing you around. Uh, so we were all in Adam's loins. Hebrews suggests that when he says that when Abraham, the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews, I believe it's seven, when he says that when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, that in a sense, Levi did as well because Levi was in Abraham's loins. Levi was uh, five or six generations down from Abraham, but the suggestion being that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, that Levi would have done so through Abraham because he was in Abraham's loins. Are you with me? So we were in Adam's loins. When Adam died, we died. So death passed over uh, onto all of the race. And the fact of it is evident that, for example, a fetus dies, it's because of sin. Now, how can a fetus uh, doesn't commit transgression? Uh, a little baby that dies hasn't committed transgression. But nonetheless, the fact of death occurs because of sin in the members. The sin nature is passed down to us. What in essence is it? It is an inclination uh, to go against God and to be uh, focusing on ourselves. Everybody with me? I would suggest to you folks that the Bible does not teach age of accountability. Um, now I remember Dennis Swanberg saying that he, imitating Billy Graham, how many of you have heard Dennis Swanberg? Dennis Swanberg can do imitations. Principal, he's great at Billy Graham. He was imitating Billy Graham, and he said, Billy Graham was praying, and he said, I asked the Lord, can an Aggie get saved? <laughs> and the Lord said, yes. And I said, why? <laughs> and the Lord said, never reach age of accountability. <laughs> I'm a T-sip, so. Well, the Lord has gotten even with me. Uh, I have a son-in-law that's an Aggie. 
But I'm not sure Scripture teaches age of accountability. Um, what What is the situation there? I think God is perfectly capable, even with a fetus, of communicating the gospel. There is a great example of a man who was a rodeo bronc uh, rider, very famous and very wise, uh, partied all the time. He was a, a chick magnet, as they say. I mean, he was wine, women, and song was, was his lifestyle. Absolute unbelief. One day a bronc threw him and he hit his head on a rock and was in a coma for seven months. And when he came out of it, he was a believer. And they said, what happened? He said, in the split second of my being thrown from the bronc before hitting my head on the rock, God communicated the gospel. You never know that God is capable of doing this. That's why you don't want to give up praying for the lost loves. I would suggest to you that God is perfectly capable of communicating to a tiny baby on that baby's level. <laughs> Uh, or even a fetus. So, you know, God is merciful. I don't understand how things work, but from what we've gone through on his attributes, he is full of compassion and mercy, uh, and he is willing to be merciful and give grace. That's. I think you'll see a lot of babies in heaven. I just don't think it's necessarily based on age of accountability. I'm not sure the scripture teaches that. But I think God, being merciful and full of grace, uh, is able to communicate the gospel on any level he needs. Uh, and there are lots of examples of it throughout the world where uh, there's, I remember an Indian tribe in particular in the North American that was found in the 18th century, mostly Christian. Where did that come from? Well, they said a guy came into their camp, shared the gospel with them, and left. I mean, it. God's capable of doing whatever he wants to do, and and I think he often does. Okay, there's a lot of extra-biblical evidence uh, that Genesis is not a myth or an allegory. (coughs) Uh, The human race is one species, though it's several families. There's strong evidence of world migration of peoples from Central Asia. In other words, the, the Saudi Peninsula or Mesopotamia, that area. Uh, no matter how diverse their similar characteristics uh, and uh, traditions, uh, almost all or all that I know of have a tradition of a flood. Three of the most common symbols throughout pagan religions all through the world are the tree, the snake, and the woman. The woman. Yeah. There, there are all kinds of throughout uh, various uh, religions, pagans. I don't care if they're aborigine out in the <coughs> remote corners of Australia. Uh, the, I've been told, I don't speak Chinese, but I've been told <coughs> that the Chinese word for flood some of you might be able to correct me or, or verify one way or the other, is a boat with eight people in it. Sort of a, a semicircle with eight slashes. 
I don't know if that's true or not. <coughs> we know that the Indo-European languages appear to have originated from a common language. That's why words like from the Celtic, uh, English, French, Latin, all have similar meanings. Um, ancient Egypt may be a link. Some of the philologists that study languages think that they may have found a link within ancient uh, Egypt with a language that goes even further back than Indo-European. Uh, the psychology of man, common instincts, common desires. Don't care if you're CEO of General Motors or a camel. Everybody has a sense of God. Everybody has a sense of God. Um, let's talk about man's divine image real quick. And let's be more specific when we say that man is created in God's image. Uh, did we retain that image? Uh, image and likeness are very much the same. Uh, James 3.9 With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So when we talk about the likeness of God or we talk about being created in His image, we're talking about the same thing. Um, what it means when it says that we are created in God's likeness or God's image means that we are made in a particular way uh, that is a reflection of Him. In other words, we were originally made for the purpose of reflecting uh, His divine glory. If you look over in 2 Corinthians um, Paul in 2 Corinthians, um, let's see, 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord uh, the Spirit. Now the fact of the fall with regard to sin, God's image has not been totally uh, erased. It's been marred in us, but His image still remains. <clears throat> there are two elements that make up God's image in man. One is what's called the natural image, and the other is called the spiritual image. And Jonathan Edwards uh, said that the natural image is the manner in which God distinguishes man from animals. We've already talked about that. Uh, the spiritual image is the righteousness that reflected itself in obedience to God. God <coughs> made us righteous. We started out righteous. <coughs> Edward suggests, Jonathan Edwards suggests that if God had not made us righteous, it would be morally wrong for him to have required us to be obedient without making us with the requisite righteousness to do that. Edwards then goes on to say that once man had the righteousness that God gave him, once man sinned, God was not morally obligated to redeem him. But of course God did. Uh, the fact that we are created in God's image in the righteous situation reflects our uh, soul and our spirit. No one has ever seen the essence of who we are. You look at the mirror 
and you see your physical body, but that's not you. Your physical body contains you, but who you are is a spirit and a soul. And like God, the spirit is invisible, but so are you. Uh, you're only looking at your outer frame. And, of course, I'm the older I get, the less I look in the mirror. You know? I'm ready to trade in a new model. Uh, but you do not see yourself uh, because we are invisible just like he is. We are also immortal like he is, but we are not eternal, which is a distinction we drew before. Uh, now, the image of God is reflected in man's dominion uh, over the earth. In other words, he gave us uh, that dominion. So we have, what have we lost in the, in the fall? We've lost the moral conformity to him and we've lost our ability to obey him and thereby remain in union with him. That's, that's what happened uh, as a result. Now, <clears throat> the doctrine we get to now is the doctrine of the fall. Is everybody <coughs> awake do we need to take, stand up and up and down? I mean, I'm <coughs> I'm moving kind of fast at this point because I want to get us saved before we leave. <laughs> because the the actual ask the doctrines of redemption is the area that the devil attacks most, um, and that's certainly what we want to get to. All right, the doctrine of the fall. Now today, man's very different from the way he was created, and you can see that in the human nature. Um, let me see. There's some stuff here. I think I want to skip. All right, let's go down. The fact that when man fell, Genesis three is treated by the Bible as being historical fact. It's not a myth. That's not a legend. And you're going to have to decide, frankly, because the fact of Genesis being fact is critical uh, to salvation. And if you say it's just an allegory or a myth, you're going to have a problem. The serpent was not just a symbol of evil. Scripture teaches that that was an actual being, uh, that he was a fact. And other scriptures accept the historicity of Genesis 3. Um, for example, Job 33, 31, 33, Hosea 6, 7. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm taking a, I'm using a throat lozenge that somebody told me is really great. They said they swear by it. it tastes awful. As soon as I put it in my mouth, I started swearing. <laughs> so I can say I swear by it. Um, but what the Bible says is that man fell and was corrupted now evolution is exactly the opposite evolution is saying that we started as slime and we are moving up the scale that we are getting better and better that is exactly the opposite the Bible says we were at the top of the scale and we fell uh and I was just saying, let me. I was just listing some scripture that says the Bible is Genesis three is historical. Hosea six seven, Second Corinthians eleven three, Romans five twelve through fourteen, First Timothy two fourteen. Um, now, how did the fall happen? We all know that story, right? 
Um, the devil, and this is the way he works. The devil attacked the woman. There's no criticism of the woman, but it's likely that Eve had less contact with God than Adam had. Because Adam was created first. Uh, Eve was pretty much, I think, going on uh, what uh, Adam had told her, although I think she had direct contact with God. You'll notice the way the devil does it is he starts slandering God and she starts listening. Uh, And once she starts listening, she begins to doubt God's love. And... uh, You'll notice what she says. She goes too far with what the devil, in responding to the devil, and I think this is Adam's fault. Uh, He says uh, in Genesis 3, uh, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast, and he approaches Eve and he says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may not eat. We may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now God didn't say that. He said you'll not eat from it. He didn't say don't touch it. Where'd she get that? I have my suspicions that she got it from Adam. He was making double sure that she didn't get anywhere around that tree. And he said, God says, we can't even touch it. Okay, well, that's what happens when you go beyond the word of God. Because that opened the door. Uh, The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And I suspect at some point she touched it. So she had to do that to eat it. And when she touched it, it was obvious she didn't die. Assuming she knew what die meant. I'm not sure they knew what that meant. It just meant it weren't good. Whatever whatever that meant. Uh, and so she goes beyond what the word was. And um, Satan takes advantage of that. And she sins by then actually eating. Oh, we do that, don't we? I'm only just going to do this much. And then what does the devil say? Well, you've already done that much. You might as well go all the way. Do you, anybody here besides me ever listen to that? Thank you, Pat. <laughs> yeah, that's the way he does. And so <laughs> what happens is it says, and this is what gets me, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable for make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, while this conversation with Satan is going on, where is the husband? Oh, he's on the other side of the garden planting petunias. Oh, no, he's not. He's standing right there. I don't know what he had. But he is standing there and he is listening to this conversation and he is dropping his responsibility. He shouldn't have let it go as far as it did. 
Now, one can argue that Eve was being deceived, and 1 Timothy suggests in chapter 4 that Eve was deceived. But Adam wasn't. He knew better. And he had a responsibility for her, and he sat there and let her do it, and then joined in with her. I mean, it's not Eve is not the problem. It's Adam. He's the one that did it, and he joined right in. Now, uh, God gave us free will. He didn't create sin, but he ordained it in the sense that he permitted it. And what they're trying to do, as I think she's trying to shortcut divine knowledge, she would eventually come to know the things God wanted her to know, but she saw this as a shortcut. Uh, And so she drops into that. What he does is he tempts her with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Saw that it was good for fruit, for eating. Saw that it was to make one's wise. Each one of those deals with, and Satan never changes the, the temptations because they work. As they say in Texas, don't fix it if it ain't broke. And you'll notice in 1 John 2, 15, that's what he says. The boastful the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The love of the world is enmity against God, and it's based on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And nothing has changed. Yes, ma'am. Um, I always have this question. If Adam never took that fruit, what would have happened? If Adam what? Never took that fruit. And I never eat that fruit. Maybe the story will be very different. I think Does so. God give him the instruction not to eat. Or... Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been very different. Yeah. But God knew what was going to happen, uh, and He planned redemption from the beginning, uh, from before the beginning, because. You know, he comes to them and he gives them a promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. And there, what is the evidence that God intended to redeem us from before, the beginning? Because it's not just the promise. He gives us the promise of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. He's talking about what Jesus is going to do. Okay? But we have evidence before that that God is going to redeem us earlier in Genesis 3. What happens when they sin? Their eyes are open. They say they're suddenly naked and they know it. Now, I think that's more than physical nakedness. I think they suddenly realize they're psychologically vulnerable too. And so they dive into the into the bushes and they hide. God, they, when they do that, when they hear God walking in the cool of the evening, here's the, here is the intention, the indication that God had always intended to redeem us. What does God say when they hide? Adam, where are you? Now, what have we discovered about God in looking at his attributes? He wondered where he was? He knew exactly where he was. If the Spirit of God in his absolute holiness is to eradicate sin in his presence, then Adam and Eve should have been toast. Bang. That's it. Gone. Instead, he says, Adam, where are you? 
Isn't that interesting? God chose to postpone judgment for sin while he redeemed us. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Incidentally, propitiation, in case we don't get there, means that the wrath of God has been appeased because the justice of God that demanded payment for sin has been paid. Uh, Publicly as a propitiation in His blood through His faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, it says that he forbore to punish sin. What does Paul mean by that? It means that he did not destroy Adam and Eve. He forbore, he caused his wrath to be withheld and did not destroy them in order to bring about their redemption in Christ. And in order to control sin, which otherwise would run rampant, he set up human government. And government seems to keep forgetting what they're there for. It's not to run our lives, it's to keep order while the redemption is brought into place. Now what happens to us is this. And we'll get to original pollution. God created us to be lords of the universe. God did not create us to be God. In essence, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they basically said, we're not satisfied with our job description. We want to be God. That's what basically the enemy talked them into. Now, whether they fully understood that, we don't know. But God did not create us to be God. God created us to be lords of creation. So we sit in his throne, he says, out of my chair. What has that done to us? We have this, and I call it the devil's seat. How did the devil get thrown out? Huh? Self. 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 He, he wanted to be God. He tried to overthrow God. He got us to try to do the same thing. Here's the thing. We were created to be Lord of creation. We were not created to be God. When we fell, one of the things that is the result of our fall is a deep sense of inadequacy. Of inadequacy. Because we weren't created to be God. We're not adequate for that position. And yet we have in us this desire for that. You with me? Okay. You will never get rid of the sense of inadequacy. Because it's part of the sin nature. Sin nature wants to grasp and be on top. But we weren't created for that. So there is this tension within us. It creates inadequacy. Every one of us is inadequate. 
And we spend a lot of our lives trying to prove we aren't. Don't we? Well, for example, why do people want to be CEOs? Why do they want to be? Why do they want to be uh, entertainers? Why do they want to do various things that they do? Everybody is trying to convince themselves they have. Why do I want to win a lawsuit when I try a case? I want to applaud them and say, you've done good. When they tell me I did good, I have this brief sense of happiness. But the next morning is gone. Uh, Madonna. She actually put a finger on I don't you know what she said. She said, I try my hardest when I perform because the applause of the people at the end tell me that I'm happy. The next morning I have to stay awake. Every one of us is pretending to be adequate. We're pretending to be as cool as the guy next to us is pretending to be. Because we are trying continually to overcome this deep sense of the moment. Even the hobo on the railroad car, whatever he's doing at his level, is an attempt to make himself feel happy. At least he's king of the road. Am I the only one here? That's pretending. So that's the wonderful thing about redemption. It doesn't matter anymore. God says you are inadequate, but I will perfect your strength in you. I have made you adequate in Christ. Look at Hebrews four. I can't tell you when I understood. That it's okay that I'm inadequate. What a rest that was for me. I can I have I strive and strive and strive to prove I'm adequate. In fact, the Lord came to me one time when I was sick about 20 years ago. He said, "You know why you're a trial lawyer?" I said, "No. I should never have asked why." <laughs> He said, you're a trial lawyer because you're trying to prove you're macho uh, because basically you think you're a coward. Now, that's not to go out of this room, and I'll have to have that erased from the paper. <laughs> he said, well, you're not a coward, but you're not macho either. But it's okay because I have made up the difference. You just worry about pleasing me. You don't worry about pleasing me. Look at Hebrews 4. Uh, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, it would not have been spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. What's the rest? I'm not proving I'm adequate anymore. I don't have to worry about that. I don't care about that. I don't care the fact that I am inadequate. I am and I've rested from the tiring attempts to convince myself through others that I am. It's a wonderful position to be in, but we got it from Adam, uh, and it's been there ever since they fell. It's, we've got to prove ourselves. No, we don't, and we never will prove ourselves. But in Jesus, 
it's okay. Incidentally, let me. People have asked me before, why did, uh, why is it that God is not willing to redeem Satan, but He's redeeming us? And we know from Exodus, I mean from uh, Ezekiel 28, that Satan's sin originated within himself. In other words, uh, Satan knowingly did what he, nobody seduced the enemy. Nobody seduced Satan into rebelling against God. Now, Adam and Eve were seduced. They were tricked. Uh, Satan was not tricked. (coughs) The devil (coughs) and his demons are not going uh, to be redeemed because their sin was from within, not from an outside source, as was the case of us. Now, the results of disobedience are that Adam and Eve became conscious of their flesh, uh, and there was a sense of guilt that they had never had and there is this deep sense of inadequacy that I was telling you about. And the indication of their sense of guilt and the sense of their nakedness is the fact that they tried to hide from God because they were afraid of Him. Uh, they became afraid of Him. They underwent spiritual death, uh, <coughs> which ultimately means spiritual death is that we are separated from God. Uh, they had a new relationship with nature as a result of this. What had been uh, working with them, God curses nature, uh, not because of animosity, but in order to require them to have to work. Um, In other words, nature is now against them. Uh, Weeds. Uh, And why would God do that? Why would they have to get everything from the sweat of their brow now I think it reminds them of what they did and how inadequate they now are Uh, I think that's why he did that because that's part of keeping in mind that when I redeem you this was all that went on as a result of my of your sin that ultimate result in my redemption of you Um, there was an under uh, they underwent a perversion of their moral nature and physical death entered the creation, which we've looked at from Romans 5, 12 through 13. The, the doctrine of original sin is that there is a remote effect of the fall of Adam and Eve, and that remote effect is us. We now have this uh, in us, and incidentally, as G.K. Chesterton put it, sin... The universality of sin is the one doctrine that is empirically proven. That's the one doctrine you don't take on faith. You don't have to have faith to see the universality of sin. Just read our history. Just read your newspapers. Just look on the 10 o'clock news. My favorite story is Billy Graham one time uh, preaching to a church to make that point spoke to the congregation and says does anybody in the congregation ever know anybody who was not perfect or who was perfect does anybody in the congregation know anybody who was perfect and he paused to let that sink in and in the silence a man in the middle of the congregation was heard to thoughtfully mutter I think my wife's first husband must have been (laughs) 
but we don't have to prove we don't we don't have to take that on faith that's true now what is sin it is and I'll, I'll give you this definition it is a moral or ethical evil manifesting several ways and these are the ways the bible describes it missing the mark uh, deviating from the righteous way the absence of integrity or truth rebellion and revolt a positive transgression of the law sin manifests in all of those things the attitude that i said earlier in isaiah 47 10 is not describing sinners but the, but the the description fits sinners that is i am and there is no one beside me um, sin means what results in is guilt uh, futility and unfaithfulness God regards it as treason. Uh, sin is in the heart. It's not simply our actions, but it's a condition. It's the way we are. Uh, it is a lack of conformity to God's moral law. And uh, uh, it is an exaltation, ultimately, of the self. Everything we do, we do from self. Psychologists will tell you that, in their opinion, there is no such thing as an altruistic act. Everything we do, we do from uh, a motive of self. Why do I help the little old lady across the street? Because I feel good about myself for doing it. You know, what's interesting is a lot of times uh, you will have a, a spouse that's addicted to, say, alcohol. And the other spouse is, drives her crazy, or him, but she hangs in there. And not unusual that when if the spouse that was addicted gets free of it within a year the other spouse leaves why because he or she was drawing her identity from hanging in there with them it was utterly a self motivation uh, and that's what sin does uh, and all of us have sinned uh, Romans five twelve. Uh, says this. He says it in two ways. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the earth and the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. The have sinned has to do with what we ourselves have actually done. The all sinned has to do with the fact that we have inherited the disposition through Adam to do so. It's not that what we do that makes us sinners. We do what we do because we are sinners. Now, all this stuff goes on that you hear all the time. Well, it's because of the environment that he was in. Now, I will grant you this. The environment somebody grows up in may cause the revelation of a certain type of sin, but it was already there, the inclination for it, before. They were born with it. That's what David means in Psalm 51 when he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that his mother was committing adultery when she, had, uh, when she conceived him. It's that from the conception that he is a sinner and he has that inclination uh, in his heart. Um, so it's like original sin? It comes from the original sin of Adam. We're all born with it. We're all born with an inclination uh, to sin. 
and that also results in original pollution, uh, which uh, everything we do is sort of polluted. Everything we touch is, is kind of polluted. And then you'll hear total depravity. What does total depravity mean? Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as bad can be. I mean, we're capable of doing good things in a sense, and we're capable of understanding moral values, and we're capable of all those things. It's not that every one of us is a mass murderer, and that's what we all are. Total depravity means that every aspect of our being has been polluted. Mind, will, emotion, all that we are has been polluted. It doesn't mean that we are all absolutely as utterly bad as we could possibly be. You with me? Now that's oftentimes a misunderstanding. And finally, we have total inability. There is nothing we can do to deliver ourselves. How are you going to be righteous before God when your own motives uh, are suspect in why you're doing what you're doing? One of the problems with the Pharisees was is they took the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and they turned it into a moral code. When you turn the Ten Commandments into a moral code, then the focus becomes you. I don't do this. I don't do that. I do this. I do. Look at the Pharisee praying with, next to the tax collector. I fast twice a day. I twice a week. I don't do this. I don't. I'm not. I'm. <clears throat> That's when you see the, the Ten Commandments as simply a moral code. Then it is simply a reflection of your sin nature to focus on yourself. The Ten Commandments is actually the very opposite of that. The reason you don't commit adultery or lie or steal is not because you'll get punished if you get caught that's moral restraint you're keeping the law out of moral restraint you with me why do you not tell a lie oh because if i get caught i'll get punished isn't that what your parents told you yeah you're not keeping the law uh because of what's in your heart you're keeping the law i mean because of your you've got righteousness in your heart you're keeping the law because you don't want to get punished That's moral restraint. The only way we keep the law is through supernaturally changed hearts when God comes into our lives in the Holy Spirit. Then we see the law as it's supposed to be. Why do I not steal? Because I don't want to hurt the person that I would take it from. Why do I not commit adultery? I don't want to hurt another family. Why do I not murder? I don't want to hurt somebody. My motivation is them. Not me. See, we'll take God's law in the sin nature that we are and we'll pervert it into something to satisfy our own sense of inadequacy and to establish our own righteousness. And we get before God, we discover that's filthy rags. You with me? Terribly significant. All right, let's get to it. We don't have the ability to do anything about it. Even when we try, it's just worse. And so we're helpless and we're hopeless and now comes the doctrine of redemption. Now, uh, salvation is it? And we've already said, incidentally, God's doctrine of redemption doesn't simply apply just to man, it applies to the whole creation. Look at Romans 8. Because redemption not only is going to restore the relationship and the communion that we lost with God, 
but it's also going to restore us to our position lords of creation why would he do that i don't know we certainly don't deserve it uh, romans 8 verse 20 for the creation was subjected to futility and willingly not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope uh, hence mosquitoes I've often wondered what their function was before the fall. <laughs> Maybe they were supposed to suck tomato juice out of the tomatoes and fly over and drop it in your glass. I don't know. But we have all kinds of problems now because of the fall. You know, creation is hostile to us. God subjected it to futility, but it says in hope that creation itself also will be free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So redemption makes our spirits alive that were dead, changes our souls to be reflections of Jesus himself, and ultimately at the end of the day, we get new bodies, and we get new bodies that are uh, ruling over a redeemed creation, a creation that is no longer hostile to us. Uh, and so redemption is for not just man, uh, but for everything. Now, let's just talk about, we could go into the covenant of works and covenant of grace, but let's go right to the Lord Jesus Christ because we're uh, short on time. And I'm not really planning to keep you till 4 o'clock. There, there is a lot we could talk about because Jesus is mentioned uh, not by the name Jesus so much as, but he is referred to again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, we just don't have time to go into the issues of the Old Testament custom, uh, covenants or the feasts like the Passover, which are pictures of redemption. But I want to talk about the Lord Jesus because Jesus is Christianity. Christianity uh, is not a teaching, it's not a philosophy, it is Jesus. All other religions take their founder out and they'll continue on without them because the religions are primarily teachings based on teachings. But Christianity is based on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take him out, Christianity's gone. And Christianity itself is based on objective historical fact. It's not based on somebody's teaching. It's based on the fact of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which actually happened. Incidentally, the devil believes all that. The devil believes every one of the doctrines we've been talking about. Because he's there. He saw it. Uh, he, he just pretends not to believe it. But he believes it. Philippians 2.
We're going to talk about the incarnation. Have this, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was a member of the Trinity. One of the things whenever I talk to the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, the first thing I ask them is, who is Jesus? Oh, he's the Son of God. Okay, that's nice. Now let me ask it this way. Is he God the Son? That snaps it right there. Because they don't believe that. They will be happy to tell you, and a lot of these cults that deny his divinity will be happy to tell you the Son of God, but they mean something very different. You can bring them out into the open right away by saying, yes, that's fine, and I agree with that, but is he God the Son? And immediately they know what you're talking about. And they'll say no. Then you're off and running. Uh, but he emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's not enough to profess belief in Jesus. You need to know, uh, and when people do profess belief in Jesus, I was just saying you need to find out what they mean uh, and what do they mean. Is he a man only? Is he God only? What is he? Uh, and like I'm saying, the cults will play word games with you. Uh, what brings people so much into Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's the fact that they are so accepting of you. People oftentimes are in deep need of acceptance. They're, they're in deep need of somebody, sort of, so to speak, putting their arm around them. Uh, and Christians should be the foremost in doing that. And it's an indictment on us that we are often cliques and cold and I get particularly upset with the idea of us going out there demonstrating and picketing it's perfectly okay to do that it's perfectly legal but what kind of a picture does it present picture is a picture of people that are pugilistic and angry uh, and that is not and if you're picketing <laughs> out there fine keep doing it I'm not shooting you down I just think you need to think about what the picture is that we are presenting to the unbeliever. Now, the doctrine of the incarnation, and that is this, and it can be defined in this way, and that is the eternal Son of God has taken unto himself a human nature entering into our time-space continuum. We cannot fully understand that. There is so much about God we cannot fully understand. We can't understand the Trinity. We can't understand the depth of His attributes. We do not understand the Incarnation. But redemption and Incarnation shows the importance of the Trinity because redemption comes out of the Trinity because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we're all involved in it. You get a picture of it with Jesus' baptism from John the Baptist. What happens? Jesus comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. 
And a voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have what you have. Redemption is an involvement of all three of the members of the Trinity. And it continues that way on throughout. Now, what we have to understand, and here's a major issue that I want to kind of summarize to you. I got lots and lots of pages here that we can go into in great detail about the incarnation. And it's really, (coughs) the incarnation is quite critical. The enemy attacked the church for the first four generations, first four centuries, attacking the incarnation. Satan will always move to undermine the atonement. The invariably in the cults and in spiritualism and all that kind of stuff, what they teach is you can obtain a certain level acceptable to God. You don't need the atonement. The primary way that he would attack the atonement, and certainly in the first four centuries, but he does so even today in the same way because all these groups today are merely progeny of the uh, heresies that started in the first four centuries. Somebody once said the canon of heresy closed about the time of canon of Scripture did because nothing's new. But he will attack the incarnation in one of two ways. Either by showing that Jesus is God but not man or showing that Jesus is man but not God. Early Gnosticism had two ways of looking at it. One was that Jesus was a man and the Christ Spirit came on him at his baptism and then left him while he was on the cross which is why he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken That's a brand of Gnosticism that started in the first century. You'll get the same thing today in the New Age movement. Anybody heard that theory before? Another theory is is that Jesus was not really a man. He was really God, but he was just uh, a hologram, if you will. He He was just a pretense of a man, but he really wasn't. What is the incarnation? The incarnation is that God the Son... (coughs) took on flesh. He is fully man and fully God. He is not part God and part man, half God, half man. He is fully, totally God and fully, totally man. He is two natures in one body. Now how do we understand that? We don't. You can't can't grasp it. We put it for example, why did God do that? Huh? Plus part of it. Well, why didn't he just create another Adam? Yeah, why didn't he just start over? Hey folks, sorry, you're out. New Adam and Eve. Why not just do it again? Because they'd fall all over again. They didn't have the ability to deal with Satan. So he said, the only way to deal with this is to do it myself. He alone is capable of dealing with the most powerful created being in the universe, the devil. At the same time, God can't pay the penalty for our sin. Only a man can pay the penalty for our sin. 
also God doesn't die. Somebody has to come who will take our sin, pay our punishment, but who is capable of dealing with the devil. You go look at the the uh, Matthew four, Luke four, the uh, temptations in the wilderness, and we think, oh well, that's that's real easy. No, it's not. The devil is dealing with him on an extremely deep intellectual level. You know, it starts out after 40 days of fasting, the devil comes to him said, well, if you're the son of God, uh, turn this bread into a uh, stone into bread, rather. I've had bread that was a stone. It's easy to turn bread into a stone. Just leave it out for a couple of days. Turn this stone into bread. What did the devil say? If you're the son of God. They both knew he was the son of God. What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. What is the devil trying to get him to do in turning the stone into bread? He is trying to get him to exercise his divine prerogatives. We already know from Philippians 2 that I just read that when he came, he he laid aside his divine prerogatives. He is not exercising his divinity and the devil's attack is to get him to do that. Jesus says, man shall live, not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The devil says, ah, ah, God, yes, okay. Takes him to a high point on the temple, and he says, here, throw yourself off, because God will not allow you to strike your foot against the stone, because Scripture says, now what did Jesus do? He quoted Scripture on the first one, Man shall not live by bread alone. So what's the devil do? He quotes scripture to him too. Throw yourself off. Now interestingly enough, at this time, there were teachings from rabbis from about a hundred years earlier. One particular rabbi taught that when the Messiah comes, he will stand on the top of the temple and throw himself off. So the devil is taking advantage of that teaching And he's also quoting scripture to him. What I would say to you is what's going back and forth between Jesus and the devil is bang, 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 bang. I mean, we wouldn't stand a chance against that. I mean, this is not silly, simple little stuff. The devil has a very clear goal in mind for what he's trying to accomplish. Ultimately, he comes out and does what he's intended all along. Takes him to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, said, hey, I'll give you all this. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. Now what he says is, and this is what's fascinating, this is the way he works. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, this has been turned over to me and I give it to whoever I want. Well, he's right on the first part. Who turned it over to him? The lords of creation turned it over to us. But does he give it to whoever he wants? No. And he says, all you, all this is yours if you fall down and worship me. Jesus says, get out of here. Sir. I'll suggest this to you folks. The day is coming when the devil is going to make that offer to another man and he's going to take him up. And you'll see it in Revelation 13 too, The Antichrist. And the devil will give him all his power and authority. We'll read Revelation 13, 1, 2, and 3. That coming, Jesus refused it. But there is one coming who will accept it. So, 
God is able to deal with the devil, but it is it is God that God man who takes on our sin and who pays the penalty for us. And Hebrews draws a very interesting parallel with this. Uh, let's go to Hebrews one. Pat, you remember this? Okay, well, tell us. <laughs> Thank you. This incarnation is, it says in First Peter that the angels can't get their eyes, their minds open. It says they, 1 Peter 1.11, they long to look into it. They can't imagine it. Um, but what you have is Hebrews, let's look at Hebrews 11. Because ultimately what we have is the God-man having taken our sin, having paid our penalty, is now resurrected and is in heaven. And God is according special honor to him. And Hebrews would show us that from the standpoint of the God-man, the divinity aspect, he's king. And from the standpoint of the man, God-man, he is high priest. Look at Hebrews 1, verse 6, And when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter, righteous scepter, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So here is the God-man in heaven crowned king. I would suggest to you the aspect of his king is that of deity. Because Jesus occupies three offices that we don't have time to go into. Prophet, priest, and king. And I'm going to deal with two of them. It's, it's the deity aspect of him that's king. Your God, your throne, O God, is forever. Now go over to Hebrews uh, 5. No, go back to Hebrews 1, 5, because he quotes from Psalm 2. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's not saying that Jesus was uh, for the first time created. It's referring to the incarnation. When your parents came together and created you, you were a new person. With the incarnation, Jesus is not a new person. He had existed from eternity. If you look in John 3, we're talking to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist talking about Jesus says, uh, He is greater than me, for He existed before me. Well, now wait a minute. I thought John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. <clears throat> he is chronologically in this time space continuum, but he is referring to the fact that the incarnated Son of God is not a new person. He has always been the person that he is from eternity past. You with me? Very important. Now, look at Hebrews 5. For every high priest, verse 1, taken from among men is anointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. 
in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. But because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, and here's the same quote again from Psalm 2. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered both prayers and supplications and uh, <clears throat> loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. And then look at 6.19 of Hebrews. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the God-man as high priest procured our salvation. Hebrews says he offered himself a sacrifice as opposed to the Levitical priesthood that were always offering sacrifices. But he is king, he is priest. He is deity, he is man. And as man, he bore our sins. God doesn't have blood. He shed his blood for us. And the result of that is utter destruction of the enemy. That's why they don't like the blood of Christ. That's why they get upset about praise songs and hymns that have the blood in them. They hate it. Because it is by the God-man shedding his blood on the cross and bearing our sin that he was defeated. The God-man king, the God-man high priest. We are kings and queens living. Aren't we? We reign with him, don't we? He's high king, but we're kings and priests. He's high priest. Are we priests? Yes. And the devil would never admit he was a man. You go back through the Gospels over and over, you'll see where he confronts demons and he casts them out. And the demons come out crying, You're the Son of God! You're the Holy One of God! Jesus says, Shut up. Be quiet. They know who he is. They admit he's God. But you'll never see a demon in the Gospels of the New Testament admitting that he's man. That they don't want to. Because it was as man that he caught. Isn't it great? <laughs> look at look at first Peter. Oh, I'm actually gonna let you out early. Well, I'm only kidding. <laughs> well we're you're probably getting hungry. 
First Peter 2, 4, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're priests. But we're also kings. Because we've been redeemed back to what we were before. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. I saw verse 4. I saw thrones and they sat on who they sat on them. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast uh, or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and what reigned with Christ. See, we're kings as well. That's that. It's absolutely incredible what he's doing. And the thing that's more incredible is you look at it and you say, why? Why? What have I done to justify this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, we got to quit. There's plenty more uh, to discuss. Uh, we've sort of talked about some of the other doctrines. Oh, let me say one thing about the Incarnation. The virgin birth is absolutely critical to the Incarnation. And the devil attacks that and is still attacking it. Jesus, the God-man's father, is God. His mother is Mary. If you take out the virgin birth... We don't have a sinless God-man. And the devil is constantly trying to deal with that. Every single one of the doctrines we're talking about is absolutely critical to redemption. You take any of them out and the whole thing goes down. That's why fundamental doctrine fences out the sheep and the wolves, fences out the wolves from the sheep. Secondary doctrine, when's the rapture going to happen? Can you lose your salvation? That sort of thing. Those fence out sheep from sheep. People get arguing with each other over secondary doctrine. As uh, I forgot who says this, Beth Moore, I think, says those kind of doctrines are rib issues, but fundamental doctrine is backbone issues. If you don't believe the fundamental doctrine, you're not with us. If you deny any of the fundamental doctrine, you're not, you're not in. Now, one of the things I usually will take the Mormons to, because the uh, the incarnation is under the surface here, Romans 10. Nine, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The word Lord there was used in the Septuagint, which is uh, Kyrios, 
used in the Septuagint to describe Yahweh. So what Romans 10.9 is saying is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Yahweh and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, now there you have the incarnation. If Jesus is Yahweh, how come he's being raised from the dead? Because he's the God-man. And the whole gospel is tucked right there in those two verses. Without the incarnation, you don't have redemption. And the devil knows it very well. And so that's what he most commonly attacks. And that's what the cults are off out in the weeds about. They have not understood the characteristics and attributes of God. And they are completely messed up with the incarnation. Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay, there's much we could do yet. Um, that's why it took two years originally to do this. The substitutionary death of Christ, the return of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Uh, in other words, death is a realm. Uh, we get this from Peter's statement in Acts 2. Death could not hold him, implying that it's a dominion, it's a realm. But since he wasn't really a sinner, Jesus didn't become a sinner bearing our sins. He merely took our sins. The idea, and I've heard this taught, that Jesus went to hell because he was a sinner. Uh-uh. How could he be a sinner in bearing our sins? He's absolutely obedient to what God has called him to do. That's not sin. He just simply bore our sin. But he himself wasn't a sinner and never became a sinner. Even bearing our sin, he didn't become a sinner. Once he had done what God called him to do with absolute and complete obedience, suffered death for us, paid our penalty, separation between us and God, and Jesus was separated from God, uh, bang, God raised him up. Death couldn't hold him. It had been des destroyed and defeated. And so the resurrection is evidence that God accepted the sacrifice and that it's adequate. Yeah. Who knew no sin. Made him to bear our sin. In other words, he's bearing our sin. But Jesus himself did not become sin. Pardon? He was made to sin, yeah, but it's referring to bearing it, not not being it. Uh, because in hanging on the cross, you know, what is sin? It's disobedience to God. In hanging on the cross, he's being obedient to God. Uh, so he, there, our sin didn't make him a sinner. It's that our God punished him, put our sin on him, and punished him for us. Uh, but you know, if you look at it, there's not really any suggestion that Jesus went to hell. Uh, and I hear that talk. First uh, Peter three doesn't really say he went to hell. It says he. Uh, he had made an, a proclamation uh, to those in, in, in hell. The uh, Apostles' Creed said, crucified, dead, and buried, 
who descended into hell. But uh, that little phrase didn't get into the Apostles' Creed until the 7th century A.D. Also, Ephesians talks about the fact in Ephesians 4 that he descended into the Lord regions but commentators will generally agree that that's not hell that's that's earth that that he came into to the the lower regions of earth uh, but not hell but regardless he didn't he's not a sinner uh, he himself is not a sinner yeah Vic. or other believers unbelievers I guess which one of these doctrines separates, uh, I guess, Mormons from Catholics? Mostly secondary doctrines. Secondary. Yeah. I, I have some problems with Catholicism in terms of uh, some of the things that they now teach. Uh, but the difference between, say, Arminians and Reformed, both aspects of Christianity, the secondary doctrine, not primary. Uh, you know, the Arminians say you can lose your salvation. The Reformers say you can't. Okay, but you can have godly people who adhere to the fundamental doctrines who disagree with each other on that point. But if we disagree over the virgin birth, somebody got a problem. We disagree over whether you can lose your salvation. Godly people can disagree over that. But godly people can't disagree over virgin birth. For example, Rob Bell, who has now gone completely over into universalism, who was one of the darlings of evangelicalism, he started by denying the virgin birth. You know, can't do it. It's not possible. Well, folks, we got to quit, and I appreciate you sticking around as long as you did. Uh,